Hi, this is Guillermo del Toro and you're watching the School of Movies. <laughs> Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Now for our next item, the royal crown of Beth Mora. A piece from a long lost culture. Lost? Not at all. Very much alive. And I am here to reclaim what is rightfully mine. Call security! When our world is threatened, I have returned to wage war and reclaim our land. My forces beyond our understanding. Our government turns to an elite, top-secret organization. We're moving out. We had over 70 guests reported. We have no survivors. Same story here, babe. Don't call me babe. Hey, I said, hey. Red, we have company. I'm Princess Nuala. My father died to uphold the truce with your world. I will call upon the help of all the children of the earth. The good. The bad. Give it up, Nasty. We can see it. You see me? How? How do you see me? And the worst. The Golden Army. The unstoppable force. Oh, crap. Them. Wouldn't do that if I were you. They're afraid of me. You have more in common with us than with them, demon. Excuse me. Make the choice. You woke up the baby. And welcome back to the Guillermo del Toro season of podcasts. His seventh film was a return to the world of Hellboy, carrying it further from creator Mike Mignola's initial vision and integrating the characters into a subtly pervasive del Toro earth, wherein Crimson Peak, The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water and Kronos all actually happened. Welcome back to our show, Lauren Grave. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. The first film cost $66 million and $6 and made $99 million and $9, which, in movie terms, is not worthy of a sequel. This caused Columbia to jettison the license and Universal, fresh from their entirely unprofitable Serenity venture, and mere months after putting out the final unprofitable Incredible Hulk movie, picked up Hellboy for a second go at making this strange license something that few people would want to see. And they succeeded. They spent $85 million, they made a dismal $160 million back, and then the fate of Hellboy 3 went into development hell for 10 years until Mignola took his boy back and rebooted. But here's the thing, the original Iron Man came out in May of that year as has been much celebrated on this, the 10th anniversary of the MCU. But I would argue that the largely ignored Hellboy 2 The Golden Army is more like the MCU is now than the original Iron Man 
is like the MCU is now. Specifically, Hellboy 2 feels like Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, and a little bit like Thor Ragnarok. It's what I wish Doctor Strange was more like. But that film chose to emulate Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins, at least to begin with, then it went into Inception mode, thankfully taking the crazy psychedelia further and winding up feeling eventually like an MCU film. Hellboy 2 has that beautiful, unabashed sense of humour with offhand character banter going back and forth across a very colourful cast who have become an awkward family over time. It has the MCU character growth and man-child and conflict along the same lines, dealing with who am I? Where is my place? How do you respond to horrific injustices of the past? If this was somehow the next MCU release, it would make five times what it did a decade ago. The world is more than ready to embrace this kind of production now. Back then, they were too busy marvelling at how realistic and legitimate a cinematic crime thriller The Dark Knight was, and how it made comics seem so very grown up and relevant. I still love Nolan's middle film and fully acknowledge its brilliance, but its legacy has been confusion and conflict over how to properly replicate that feeling, while Marvel has, with utmost confidence, adopted the Hellboy 2 model. Don't believe me? The Golden Army begins with a dazzling storybook intro illuminating the untold history of this part of the world that will become super relevant in just a moment. It's a technologically enhanced puppet show to evoke the way we picture oral storytelling. We meet an angry throneless prince. No, he is not the hero, he's the antagonist, and he is on a heist, stealing back his kingdom's treasures from humans who display them proudly with no concept of their true importance, reveling in ignorance to the suffering and marginalization and death of the culture that made them. The prince is helped by a big, brutish, hairy, ugly guy with a weaponized hand, and the regular people come off the worst for this particular heist. Now, our hero is conflicted over coming out to the world, something that is dangerous and cannot be undone. He clashes with several of his teammates who try hard to teach him morality and responsibility. There's an espionage mission to gather information. It goes south and spills out into the streets for a car-smashing midsection. Eventually, the villainous prince turns up in the hero's home. They fight, and the hero lose it, undergoing horrible injury in the process. Then the movie rests on the decisions of the female hero, who goes on a quest to save the day. She enlists the aid of a neutral party who brings the hero back to fighting fitness. The final showdown is conducted underground, bordered by a visually stunning battle which is parabolic of the overarching conflict. The hero and the Dark Prince grapple for control of unspeakable power that the Prince will turn on unsuspecting humans, thus claiming his birthright. The Prince will never yield or back down, and he is too consumed by hatred to see any other way forward. And this is all tied up in his father and cemented in place by how that man died. 
The only way the prince can be stopped is to be mortally wounded as he is stabbed in the torso. He reflects on his actions and what will happen to his people as he dies. And the hero who is with him thinks a great deal harder about who he is and the responsibility to his people. He is also, in doing this, forced to contend with the past sins of his father's organization and the part he, the hero, played in enforcing them. Thus, this opposition changed the hero's perspective on the world. At the end of the Golden Army, Hellboy and his friends quit being controlled by the American government. At the end of Black Panther, King T'Challa makes America and the rest of the world aware of Wakanda. Oh, you're going with Black Panther. Because, <laughs> okay, what would you apply it to? Oh, I was just going to make a joke and be like, you know what? It is just like Thor 2, The Dark World. <laughs> but <laughs> um, There's elves, my goodness. Yeah, honestly, yeah, the, the elves sort of come back out of the uh, cracks and go, you forgot all about us, but we're really boring and miserable, so who cares? <laughs> yeah. And, and Thor, with the power of hitting the things with his hammer, you know, saves the day. So, good movie. <laughs> I could probably do a strangulated reaching, like, parallel with um, uh, the Thor The Dark World, but the big movements of Black Panther do most definitely parallel Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. Oh, Even though the, yeah. the, the hero is wildly different. Mm. You know, T'Challa is a man, most definitely. He's, he questions himself, but he's most definitely a mature man. Hellboy is a boy. He is the archetypal Marvel hero. of uh, He's Star-Lord. He's the boy who's not really ready to grow up yet. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way you laid it out like that, it's, it's pretty... It would be pretty hard to argue against that, that read. Mm. And by the way, I am not saying that the people who put together Black Panther stole from Hellboy 2 the Golden Army. Uh, it could all be alarming coincidence. They're both extremely well-crafted stories. Mm. Also, we've established in the past that Del Toro pulls on this um, massive pool of myth and story, which yeah. anybody who's doing really well-crafted fantasy sci-fi type things is going to be drawing mm. from as well. But I think when we, um, t- uh, when we did... Black Panther, I mentioned that uh, um, Prince Nawada in this is very, very similar to Killmonger uh, in, in intent and in determination and in tragedy. He's got this sadness and beauty about him. He's just so fierce and hateful. And, like, you could almost see, had things gone differently, he would be a proud warrior for something good, something that could build. Mm. But... His life has been twisted up. Yeah, and he has the thing at the end, just to skip to the end, that um, that Killmonger has, which is that he recognises the terrible things he's done, and when it comes down to it, he can't walk back from that. Mm. I feel like the first movie was made more by committee hmm. and okay. to, to just that. be like general. So there's, as I was watching this film again today, Hellboy 2, I just, 
I kept thinking about how much more personal this one was, while at the same time, to uh, Del Toro, hmm. while the actual characters had so much less to do with the story proper. Because the first, the, the first movie, I think one of the not downfalls, but one of the aspects of it that's almost a little eye rolling is the fact that you know all of the characters are there, ostensibly being kind of like a you know an X Files or a Scooby Gang or something like that, like mm. an anti supernatural force. But all of the problems in that first movie, the antagonist and all of the monsters and all of the threads, all go back to Hellboy and who he is, and that ends up being like ultra focused on him. While this movie feels way more like a monster of the week episode of like a, one of those shows that I mentioned. And those were always my favorite, but there's always like, you could explore more in those monster of the week episodes. I find uh, at least in the, in like the monster and in the themes that you're doing. And there's something about this one that felt so much more loved and that it, it works for children. I mean, it's um, a PG 13, I believe. And uh, so, you know, it works for younger kids, maybe not the youngest, but then the first one just, it was almost like, I think the best way I can explain it is it's kind of like Teflon. Like, had we not talked about it, like, even though we talked about it last week and I watched it, I think, three times, I still don't remember most of the beats of that first film. Hmm. But this one... I've, I've, you know, I watched it three times and, and we're talking about it now and I've been thinking about it all day, but there's so much more texture that I can recall in this one and, and like little tiny moments that just, I mean, I know we're probably going to talk about it, but the entire scene where they drink the beer is just so delightful and weird in this kind of film. And it feels so much more lived in. And the first one felt like it was crafted more by committee or at least from notes about from like focus groups or something like that to be like, oh, this is how you make this generally appealing. And that movie was being made for that not real like sample audience, while this one felt like it was being made by Del Toro for Del Toro. I think the key element of how that shift takes place for me is that the first one is very plot driven i was going to say powered by the plot versus powered by the characters versus powered by the characters precisely and in the first one it is particularly undermined by the fact that half of the characters namely the antagonist half are extremely thin and um one-dimensional and you you get like they have certain motivations because they have to do those things in order for the plot to happen. You don't really get any sense of um, what's driving them internally. In contrast to that, the uh, the roundedness and three-dimensionality of uh, Noada, maybe not so much Mr. Wink, but Noada <laughs> in particular. Mr. Wink is a really well-trained gorilla. Yeah, I feel much. sorry for him most of the time. <laughs> but, but again, yeah, there are there are depths to his mm. um, his actions and the things that he does and, mm. and where his loyalties are. But he's lie. on a par with, say, Cronin. With Cronin. In Cronin terms was of, one of yeah. the better villains, but he's certainly way better than bird whose name I can't remember. Ilsa. Ilsa, thank Ilsa. you. Well, just um, the, there you go. She was so thin I couldn't even remember. Standard her name. sneering Nancy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um and yeah, I think that that for me is what makes this one my absolute favourite. Hmm. Um 
between all two of the Hellboy movies. Um. <laughs> well, there will be three. Here's the thing, though. I, I, I'm worried that the third one, the, mm. the reboot, will be very much like Mignola back in control. I've got the steering wheel. Now we are going to establish what the Hellboy universe is really about. Now let's power this thing by plot again. Yeah. Really? That is what's going to... Th- I think fans of the first two, and in particular fans of Golden Army, two, yeah. are going to watch it, and if they do that, they're going to go, you didn't need to spend 45 minutes explaining to us who Hellboy is. Mm. He's a big red guy who hits hard. Start from there. I mean, I, well, let's not over-anticipate that. No, 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 but, I, like, I know, but I'm, I'm just... I'm, I suppose, yeah, I'm... I'm cautious. Yeah. A little bit uh, uh, worried. Yeah. And I think another another element, at least for me, was the fact that the themes of fairy tales that Del Toro does so well in Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, which both are like previous to this, are so much more present in this film yeah. compared to the first one, and that makes it feel so much more Del Toro in, in a way. Mm, yeah, mm. and the way he plants um, symbolism. And uh, and metaphor in his movies. There's a fantastic example of this. We were watching the commentary, and um, and ordinarily I'd say this is just an example of me being really unobservant, um, but it just it made me laugh because he was talking about how um, the a, a key element of the story in this film. Spoiler alert! But you shouldn't be listening to this unless you've seen it anyway. Um, is that Liz is pregnant? Mm. And um, he was saying, uh, Del Toro was saying in the commentary that the film is peppered with imagery and um, and symbolism representative of fertility and pregnancy and parenthood. And I was sat there thinking, is it? I don't recall seeing an awful lot of that. One of the first things <laughs> that turns up in the um, stealing the, the crown piece from the auction house scene is a gigantic... <laughs> Venus of Willendorf. Not only a fertility symbol, the most famous fertility symbol in the world. I think it's And Hellboy so, symbolically shoves, shoves this mother over, over. and uses, <laughs> uses it, it to, to squash, squash little baby things. And, and I was sitting there thinking, how on earth did that not click? Um, and it's just and the way he uh, blends the symbols that he uses so well with the the characters and the background and what's going on in the story makes it possible to miss a nine-foot pregnant woman. <laughs> he refers to uh, how the tooth fairies turn up um, as, as heavy-handed. He Like, the, the, the cracks up the wall go upwards and then spiral out in, in on to the left and the right. And he said, well, this is my heavy-handed fallopian imagery. I was like, oh, God, it bloody is as well. But it's like, he considers that heavy-handed. That's how delicate this fellow is. Yeah, indeed. But the that in particular, um, it, it intrigued me that he was talking about that that shape as sort of being very fallopian. I have always seen the tooth fairy as, as like locust-like, mm. that they descend and consume everything, which from a perspective of being pregnant and not really sure if you want to be... So we're, yeah. in, we're in Gremlins territory now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like, we, we, it's going to be a while before we cover Gremlins, folks, but it's a metaphor for having a child. The idea that it starts out, this gorgeous, cute baby, then the terrible twos happen, and then they're coming after you with a lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, that's, that's what Billy's afraid of. Mm. <laughs> Can you blame him? 
Speaking of the imagery, the the first time I watched this, whenever there's a scene, there's a single shot where it's like Liz is concerned for Hellboy safety and the camera's panning slowly to the one side. And then in the background, there's this giant billboard about family planning. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, that feels a little heavy handed. And then missed most of the rest of the imagery in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think there's there's like the scene with the um the elemental. Mm-hmm. There's like three baby references in really quick succession. Um oh. one of which is the gun which is called Big, Big baby. baby. Um and one of which is the literal baby that he has to go <laughs> and catch. I, um Yeah. There's there's the, a lot of it. The elemental in particular I think is is uh a really good, like much more subtle version of this, because in the commentary, he specifically points out that it's a male elemental, but it is this elemental of like fertility and growth. So it's, it's almost trying to take on like that more masculine side of things and Hellboy confronting it is, is somewhat related to that. Although I don't think Hellboy realizes it in the moment quite so much, but it's like even something as simple as that is like, oh yeah, well we put another tentacle there just to reiterate that this is a male elemental. Mm-hmm. And that's not very common to see um like a, a a forest god instead of like a forest goddess. Yeah. You know what I mean? Although when it falls over um and the uh the moss um reaches out over everything, um it kind of looks like the outline of who's the island goddess in Moana? Tafiti. Oh, Tafiti. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was reminiscent of that. But again, then you've got that that mythological blend of masculine and feminine within the same entities. Um, and I think the and you, and you get this, there is actually a lot of examples of that in this. You've got um, creatures which are ostensibly female, but then have quite a um, an aggressive, uh, distorted, masculine way of communicating, for example, or um, the the. You mean the I rip your heart. Yeah, you mean the Scottish woman? Yeah. Uh, yes, the that, troll. and um, also the, oh, the yeah, angel she of was death. A troll. Yes. The angel well, of death is is ref- he Del Toro refers to it as she. Yeah. Um, but it's it's, it, it's, it's she's strikingly androgynous. And, yeah, absolutely, and yeah. I, th- I think that's that's intentional. But again, it, it ties in with this sort of mythological things. Uh, being very much the their gender is not necessarily by individual choice, but certainly a matter of perception and appropriateness for the situation. Mm. Um, and the other example I was going to give was the the uh, tooth fairies, which some of the close ups show you that they do have these sort of li- like little. They're not tentacles like on the elemental, but they're almost like little. Um, Dicks. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> given their positioning. But no, I was going to say like a like a, a tube on a worm or a, a some kind of um, uh, mollusk type creature um, that appears to be part of their reproductive system. Somebody put thought into that. Somebody, yeah. when designing those creatures, thought right: how do we make more of them? Um, and having a protuberance that deposits whatever it is you're reproducing with is generally considered from the human perspective to be um, a a masculine quality and something that we ascribe to males but fairies themselves are usually depicted in um, mythology as female my goodness exceptionally depicted uh, unusual male fairies amongst the females Mm. if at all yeah yeah absolutely I was just going to say that I think depositing protuberance might be my favourite euphemism I've heard in a while (laughs) 
Don't send me any depositing protuberance pics. Okay. Oh, boy. We're giving a no-depositing protuberance guarantee, folks. Uh, The the colour palette has also uh, um, changed quite significantly between uh, one and two. There was a lot more steely dark blue in that first one. There's a lot more, a sense of snow and cold and mm, steel. very and metallic. Shadows. Mm. And, and yes. there's more warmth and autumnal and gold and, and reddish orange in this. It's Pan's Labyrinth. It's the same color scheme with the same purpose, with the same lines and the same curves. Yeah. Where the, the, the warm colors and the golds and the curves and the circles are all the magic world. And the lines and the cold colors and the blues and the metallics are all the human world. And it's... I mean, the fairies from Pan's Labyrinth are literally in this film, so... Although, uh, within the BPRD, Broom's Room, uh, it has those great golden doors, so it's kind of like, you know, come in here, and there's a taste of the magical realm. Broom's uh, office and uh, his library is black, red, and gold, which mm. are the colours of the magical world, um, specifically the, the elves' kingdom. Mm. Um, and, and Nuada sports those three colours Nuada sports throughout. those three colours, and so does Hellboy. Yeah. The, the, there's two pairings in this that match, um, and uh, Liz stands off slightly to the side, but Hellboy and Nuada mirror each other in terms mm-hmm. of um, colour design, and Abe and uh, Nuala mirror each other as well um which is becomes incredibly poignant in the final scene at the end mm. um but we'll talk about that later the oh and sorry just one quick thing about the overlap with pan's labyrinth um when you have the scene where you see uh Nuada down in the sewer um where he's had to retreat to because of the wild places of the world being eliminated and the the old truce that his father insists on holding to and this is one of the reasons that he's so um he chafes under it so much is that the humans are ostensibly holding to their part of the truce, but not really, because the deal was you guys get the forests and we get the cities, and then they proceeded to consume all the forests. Yeah. So what they've been left with is this tiny little bit, and they've had to retreat to living under the city itself. Um, but there's a, a top-down shot of Nuada in the moonlight, um, making him that steely blue of the human world and he's standing on a pattern of concentric circles which looks very very similar to the one at the base of the shaft that leads down to the fawn and the labyrinth and i think there is a lot of deliberate uh, mirroring between nuada and the fawn in terms of the guardian at the gate of the mm. magical realm so after the first one del toro went away made pan's labyrinth and then came back raring to go and integrate some of this wondrous new world that he was intoxicated by into hellboy yeah. and uh, it's it's i i do like I, I don't just want to dismiss mignola this is his baby ultimately and and he can should be able to do whatever he wants with this you know film that he gets more control of and it does seem like uh, gdt overrode him repeatedly in this when it came to design and decisions. Yeah, although somebody in one of the extras, um, and it, it, I could be wrong on this, but it may even have been Mignola himself, did say that he told Del Toro while they were working on the design side of it, don't forget this is your follow-up to Pan's Labyrinth. Hmm.
one of the other major things that's changed between uh, uh, one and two is the soundtrack, the original one by uh, Marco Beltrami, this one uh, by Danny Elfman. And honestly, for me, this is one of Elfman's off soundtracks. It's not that I can't really recall much of it that's particularly effective. The um, the last elemental, it like when it when he brings it down, it's great. Mm. When he brings it down, uh, but uh, I'll say this now because so I won't be, have to pollute the ending with it. We watched the ending through today, and I thought that's just it's overblowing it a little bit. It's just like it's a little bit super melodramatic when it should be just no. This is actually really sad. Like, we are losing this. So I, I went away, I got the soundtrack to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and I went back to the scene a second after Nuada is uh, stabbed by proxy. If you guys want to try this out on at home, sync up Newt Says Goodbye to Tina, one of the last tracks in uh, Fantastic Beasts, with that moment. James Newton Howard's score absolutely captures the just bring it down, let us have that moment mm-hmm. feeling. And... I do wonder what Beltrami would have done with this because his father's funeral piece, it's very melodramatic, but it's it's a it's wonderful superb, yeah. moment. Yeah, and very powerful. And it's a real shame that the music is not as evocative as it could be because the visuals that this film brings deserve a soundtrack to... Uh, emphasize and and boost them and to an extent it it doesn't really have them I I mean I've liked a lot of Danny Elfman's stuff in the past Mm. in part I've just heard him a little bit too much yeah uh, I mean, I can understand like why they wouldn't make a soundtrack that sounded like um, Javier Neverett in uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Javier Neverett, um, because it would leave everyone just totally melancholy. And Pan's Labyrinth was 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 big, but it wasn't a huge seller. They effectively wanted to make this a hit. They wanted to go superhero movie. It's the same shit has happened when Alan Silvestri wasn't available for Age of Ultron. They went, well, they get Danny Elfman in. And he kind of trotted out something that sounded a bit like Spider-Man. I don't think it needed to be as delicate as um, Javier Navarrete's uh, pieces for Pan's Labyrinth. It's not Pan's Labyrinth. It's not the same film. And Hellboy ultimately is this big... Boisterous thing. Boisterous, stone-handed thing... Um, and he needs and deserves music that goes with him. I mean, yeah, the odd little bit of, of sort of uh, gentle, delicate um, music would have gone well with Say Noala. Yeah. Um, okay, well, how about just a theme that we can remember? Do you remember the yeah. theme to Hellboy the Golden Army? Lauren, no. do you want to hum, hum it? <laughs> oh, I am super not the person. I There are so few, like, you two are so much more cued into music like that than I am. Like, it takes something particularly special or weird or different like straight up in the mcu i think one of the only themes i can remember offhand is from iron man 3 and it's because it has that like ringing metal on metal sound and for whatever reason that's just all that stuck with me it's like the sound of hammers on anvils yeah for whatever reason that's the only theme like as soon as i hear the opening of some of them like the Guardians one or the Avengers one, like I know I will recall the rest of it, but I can't cold. It's strange. Mm. Well, the soundtrack, the, the the central theme of the Golden Army goes... <laughs> the, 
That is not a memorable, everyone's going to be whistling it tomorrow type theme. That is not a... No, it's more of a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I, I do feel the need to point out at this point that um, Alex is the one who thinks in music. I've just picked up some of it by osmosis. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> an awful lot I've picked up by I, osmosis. From some of Danny Elfman's stuff, specifically his older stuff, is yeah. really wonderful. Indeed. I don't want to importune him as a as a genius composer. No, but he's gone off the boil as he's got older. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although Big Fish is... To be is, really rude about it. Tim Burton's least watched film, Tim Burton's least appreciated film, Danny Elfman's least appreciated score, Big Fish. Yeah, but to go back to the Golden Army music, um, there is a piece that I think is memorable and very associable with Hellboy, and that's the riff that sounds like the intro to Red Right Hand, but am I right in thinking that's Beltrami and that's actually from the first one? Do you mean... Yeah, that's Beltrami's. That's his main score. It feels like Elfman could feasibly just have brought in the Beltrami bit and then just done done other stuff with it, that school just like keep that theme the whole thing about the MCU having difficulty finding and nailing down themes Hellboy doesn't have one really because they didn't allow him to keep that one by Beltrami anyway moving on from music um Oh, the title sequence. I just wanted to, to um, ask this because it's the kind of thing that Del Toro would sneak in there, um, although he didn't mention it in the commentary, so I might be imagining this. Um, but the clockwork imagery mm-hmm. in the uh, in the title sequence, the, the sort of making it look like Hellboy is being produced in a factory on a production line. Hmm. I wondered if that might have been a sly dig at the film industry. No, he loves clockwork. Okay. But he is he has a boner for clockwork. Fair enough then. And insects and clockwork insects might be his favourite things. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the the fact that the Golden Army themselves hatch out of these eggs and they're these clockwork knights, that mm. made him go all furry. Furry? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Well, right. I mean, not not what I meant, but, but maybe he did. Okay. Well, he described. Doesn't he describe in the commentary the the goggles that they use to find the troll market as like Victorian technology or something like that, which yes. is like just he's steampunk. talking about steampunk. It, it's a thing yeah. that exists, Guillermo. <laughs> Embrace it. Yeah. You're doing it. You just don't know. He's got a house full of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, he's kind of the best at doing it. Yeah. Like I can't think of many other films that do any kind of neo-Victorian aesthetic as well. I can. They're bad. Well, well okay, yeah. Films <laughs> worth remembering, perhaps. Mm. It makes writing something with steampunk aesthetic difficult to market. Mm. Um, just everyone's out there making these crap films that everyone turns their noses up at. It just kind of hammers home that steampunk is either impossible to sell, really hard to do, or just shit, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. The other thing yeah. I don't get about how this didn't grab more people um, is that there is a lot of crossover with... Um, Lord of the Rings type themes and oh, yes. imagery. I'm going to ask you about that in a, in a moment oh, when okay. it comes to the I'll elves. I'll hold that for a yeah. moment okay. then. 
Um, so the puppet show prologue. This was originally going to be live action, and I can only imagine it would have like looked uh, similar to the opening battle of the Fellowship of the Ring. And it is so refreshing for it not to be a battle scene. There have now been so many battles since that Fellowship of the Ring opening that I cannot tell one from the other. Almost always we're introduced to the armies way too early or way too late. We don't have anything invested in them. And we watch one CGI army clash with another CGI army and we don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. And the reason they didn't do it like that was because they couldn't afford to do it like that. And this is why I honestly think that having a big bottomless budget that means that whenever you reach a sticking point you can just throw money at it actually hurts films sometimes we never talked about it when we did our infinity war podcast but the weakest moment is the uh, 10 12 minutes or so of uh, fighting in wakanda before thanos turns up when it's just like the greebillies get through the shields and then they they like they punch the greebillies but i don't remember seeing anybody dying that we cared about, no Wakandans. It was all just like, we hit these things and the things die. And there was no sense of, like, we, we, we were sold the stakes, but the actual mechanics of the battle was just a, we must have a bit of a fight. Mm. It, it was not as strong a battle as, say, for example, the battle at the end of Black Panther. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, with, with Black Panther, you they, they took pains to get the very real human reasons why on either side. Exactly. Uh, obviously, Helm's Deep is like st- stands up as maybe the pinnacle of, of battles in cinema. To some people, that still gets quite boring as a battle, but it's, it's exceptionally well planned out. You get to know the people on the one side, you get to fear the Uruks on the other. It, it feels like Zulu. Yeah, like the, the battle at the beginning of Maleficent, for example. Maleficent is, is, to my mind, a really great movie. But we're shown these two armies fighting. And it's like, could we just like, is there another way of doing this? Mm. And Hellboy 2 shows us the other way of doing this, which is to sort of beautifully stylize it and get it to happen. And it reminds me of one of my favorite parts of the Harry Potter films, which is the tale of the three brothers. Like any time a film stops and shows us something animated and kind of beautiful. Mm. A uh, monster calls does it as well. Yeah. To represent something which we would normally see in live action or CG to imitate live action. I mean, it might all technically be CG anyway, but it like CG in terms of replicating real things as opposed to the feel of those things. Mm. Yeah, I think a, a big thing for those those big CGI battle sequences like you were talking about is is definitely the purpose. So like in Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings, it starts with a big CGI battle sequence, but yeah. it's quick and it's like a historical document, if you will, um, about what had happened. And it's just to kind of gloss over the beginning real quick to get through the exposition mm. for Infinity War. The fight at Wakanda wasn't about like. It was more about putting on set pieces for the different heroes to really like show how awesome they are. Just so they're awesome. (laughs) No, but it was it's the idea that like you get to see each one in sequence. Like, could you imagine somebody who like didn't see Thor Ragnarok and really didn't know who like what the hell was going on with Thor, and then you know just at that moment was like, oh no, all hope is lost because they did some other thing with the Gene Stealer Greeblies, and then Thor and Rocket and Groot come down and start wrecking. They are Gene Someone's been Steel. playing Space Hulk. You're absolutely yeah. right, Lauren. And the, ultimately, the, uh, the the big battles, if they're done with a purpose in mind, I think that's what carries them off. If the only purpose in mind is, well, we've got this 
producer that says this is a point where we should have a big battle and we have this chunk in the budget that's enabling us to pay mm. for a big battle and mm. that's all we need. There's um, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. There's a, a scene at the very beginning of the battle where the two armies collide into each other. That's wonderful. And it's a fantastic moment. And the rest of that battle is shown in tiny little snippets. You mm. see individual fights between specific people. Um, and there's stakes and characters we've actually sort of gotten to know in in, in support context exactly. do die and get yeah. turned to stone. Yeah, but at no point does that feel to me like two CGI armies bumping into each other in a screen. Yeah, yeah. And, and compare all that to the big fight at the end of Black Panther where we spent the whole movie getting to know a bunch of characters on both sides of the conflict mm. and like feeling for both sides. And the whole point of that isn't necessarily just to have a big over uh, like overly complicated visual spectacle. It's to like show you how gut wrenching that civil war is, is, is in that for that city, for that people. And, and then it's, it's magnified for the actual fight between uh, T'Challa and Killmonger mm. And it's like, you know, there's very specific purposes. And then for for this film, to get back to Hellboy 2, it's more like the Lord of the Rings reason, where it's like something to go with the exposition. But while Lord of the Rings is like that starts with just exposition about a big battle against evil, this was more about like almost the conflict between magic and banality and then the inner conflict with the elven royal family and so it's way more like a fairy tale like i would never be able to think of lord of the rings as a fairy tale but this this i could see like a whole animated feature of or a series of them in this style that are just like short little fairy tales about things and it it feels so much more authentic to what they were going for and this i mean one of the reasons that i i absolutely love it when they do these little asides that that tell you a, a past piece of history or a a mythological story or a a character investigation or something that takes the form of a storytelling session um, because it emphasizes the the sense of detachment between what's going on now and what has happened in our past Um, and it actually it, it puts me in mind of who was it you were saying about earlier today who said society is the beautiful lie we tell ourselves oh seth Oh yes, of course. In your in, from Arlington. Um, in Arlington, yeah. As far as I, Seth is concerned, uh, the the putting a necktie on a, on a savage human being—that's the lie. Yeah, absolutely. Now he calls it a lie, but you can also call it a story. Society is based on our ability to tell each other stories about what where we come from, who we are now, who we want to be in the future and how we have to behave in order to enable that to happen. And history, effectively, you you can portray it in a very dry, factual, you know, this actually happened kind of way. But here's the fundamental point about it. It's not happening now. That means it's a story. And presenting them as storytelling puts that emphasis on everything that was and everything that's going to be is that it has this this mythical feel to it which makes it bigger 
in a way. It makes it part of something huge because every mythical sort of little tale is a facet of the whole, the the big collective unconscious that we're all pouring into all the time and that we're all taking out of all the time. Um, and um, in fact, obviously we're going to talk about this later when we do the Lord of the Rings parallels, but um, it goes back to what uh, Galadriel says. History became legend, legend became myth. And the danger of that is that people forget. And that's what Nuada's battle, personal battle, is all about. He's angry people at humans who are it. like, who are you? We have no idea why you're killing us. Absolutely. And the fact that his father's angle on this is, it's okay for us to be story. I don't mind that we're myth now. I, I accept that because that's, that's in our nature. When he says it's in our nature to hold the truth, in a way, that's what he's saying. It's in our nature to be myth. It's in our nature to teach them in a way that is not entirely real to them. Sit down! Proud, empty, hollow things that you are. Let this remind you why you once feared the dark. The visual editing in this uh, has uh, had an upgrade as well, um, thanks to Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, if you notice, there were several shots in Pan's Labyrinth, I think Sharon mentioned last time, where something moves across the screen as somebody moves it. Say, for example, a curtain is pulled across or a person moves across. And as that person moves, the next shot comes into view behind them. So they are effectively presenting the wipe cut. It's very difficult to describe, but, but, but watch out for it, folks. You'll, you'll, you'll see transitions happening very smoothly. Uh, watch one specific moment, and you'll then know what to look out for. When Broom pulls out the book at the very beginning to tell Hellboy the story, as he moves the book across the screen, behind that book is the next shot where he's sitting reading the book. But as he moves the book, it's going in perfect tandem. So it smoothly moves you from one place to the next. It's beautifully stylish. And it's one of Del Toro's specialities. And it emphasises the story side of it as well, because it, you feel like curtains are being drawn. Or pages are being turned. Yeah, exactly. And since we're talking about the cinematography, there's another thing that I noticed uh, while watching it this morning, is the just preponderance of long takes. Hmm. There are these incredibly long takes through uh usually walking through an area like the very first scene in the bprd it's like a um, west wing shot pretty much and it's and it's there to show you like all the fantastical stuff going on because it's friday i love that line <laughs> but um but it but it's also giving you this sense of place and scale and understanding and those are so like I, maybe i'm just like clued in on on long takes like that just because i find it so impressive that they get pulled off because like it like everybody has to be on their cue and especially in that first scene there's so many extras but if you go back and watch the i think it's even the beginning of the troll market they mm. they do another incredibly long take and considering the riot of crazy that's going on all oh, around them yeah. it's incredibly impressive but also gives you this sense of scale and place which is really important to kind of juxtapose with the magic and the and the fairy creatures all around so that you can like it's still a world that's lived in and it just happens to have these beasts and you can kind of internalize that a little bit easier 
and it's just a cinematography or cinematographic element that I just love. It also allows for uh, two things to be played out, which not that you can't do these things with shorter cuts, but when you have um, a long, expansive move um, around the area, uh, they allow for comedy and threat because the people within the scene can utilise their own timing rather than being at the mercy of the editor. Whenever Nuada moves around, actually, you'll get scenes where the camera will move across and Nuada's there, and then the person who didn't spot that Nuada's there then comes a cropper. It's, it's, it makes you very wary of him as a character. Like he, He's sneaky and um, ninja-like. Uh, but just talking about the troll market that you, you mentioned there, the, 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 the riot of different colors and all of these different costumes at once, all of that movement and the camera moving as well, just the focus pulling on that must have been an ordeal. Just the idea of, right, if we, get, if we don't get it exactly right, these guys right here are suddenly blurry and then these guys going past are sharp, but then these guys going past as well also need to be sharp. It allows for a level of detail that really sells the world, even if a lot of that detail is going to go unnoticed by the majority yeah. of audiences. They decided against um, makeup for uh, the troll market and went with as many masks as they could simply oh. because there were too many. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they hired as many actual trolls as they could find. <laughs> Sorry, I mean not humans in makeup or humans in prosthetics. They went for just a like, quick, easy, like uh, everyone's face is covered in something fairly simple because there's just too much going on, yeah. and um, that that was a, a, a beast to film that that whole scene. Yeah. There's a lot of real subtle CGI used to to make things look more realistic, and there are a lot of really good like references or little things. And I, I'm I have to mention at some point there are honest to goodness elder things from the Mountains of Madness in the back of one of the shots, and mm-hmm. I didn't see them until he pointed them out in the commentary. And now I just I got so excited. I rewound the <laughs> the footage so many times. I'm like I must watch it again. Those are so amazing. I'll, I'll say it again, Lauren. You're welcome. You're welcome yes. for us insisting you watch Hellboy too. <laughs> One of the yeah. things I um, I really love about the uh, the troll market actually is is how it allows for a really important character point to be made about Hellboy and Liz, and it's to do with um, Hellboy's desire to be seen and to be around people. He's generally not happy about being around large crowds of people because of the way he sticks out Mm. and the way they behave towards him. But he's an extrovert. He loves being around people. He wants to be witnessed. Witness! (laughs) Witness me! He's he's talking to Liz on the radio when he goes into the troll market and he's saying that it, it like oh it's amazing there's just we we fit right in here. And he misses something really crucial. Liz does not fit right in there. Mm. Liz is human. Until she sets her fire off, Liz is indistinguishable from the average person. Liz is not wildly keen on being around crowds because when the fire goes off, they stare at her. Liz would hate being around crowds of trolls because they would all stare at her because she's human. She's super introverted. Yeah. And if she went around with herself being a bit on fire just to say, hey, I'm not a regular human, she'd probably still freak them out because they've got clothes that can catch fire. Yeah. There are fundamentals they have to... uh, Hellproof, fireproof. Both. First one, then the other. (laughs) Uh, But everybody else is, to date, 
not. Yes. Um, this this sequence actually reminded me most of uh, Jakku in um, uh, the Force Awakens. Mm, yeah. Like it feel feels not so much less special now, but I'm looking back on it and, and having to readjust my brain to go. Wow, in 2008, we really didn't do this. Mm. It it took a big push on Abrams' part to go, let's go back to like as much practical as we possibly can to make a bustling marketplace on an alien world. Because watch the stuff from the from the 2000s. There were so many just like modern streets. And like even just like the the BPRD headquarters, this like super controlled studio environment set which is not the same as the, as you say, uh, uh, Lauren, the, the best way of describing it, this riot that's, that's going on in, in the troll market. There's a bit of creaky practical in there. There's a, occasional times when, when you're like, well, that's, that's obviously a mask, but it's like far back. And the stuff that's right at the front, like Wink, looks like his head is, is helped and aided with CG. As far as I can tell, it's all animatronic. It is a big, complex animatronic one-piece suit, not a puppet, and it just looks like his mouth is moving. There are a couple of shots where they use CG to like insert his tongue or something yeah. like that. But but it is very much a practical effect. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of DNA to be taken from Star Wars. I mean, think about the old cantina scene from the original oh, yeah. trilogy. Yeah. Um, like that Palace. was all. Oh, yeah. And Jabba's Palace. I mean, until they retouched it. But yeah. Oh, there's room for Sabalba in there. Uh, hey, Guillermo, yeah, can Sabalba turn up in the troll market? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Have you got a practical version of him? I almost wouldn't be surprised if there was some Star Wars reference in the back of the troll market. Like, mm. if somebody were to point that out, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it feels like the the sequence has changed over time. It is it, it's lovely to wa- watch. It also feels quite crass when you consider how, as in Hellboy's behaviour in that place, when you consider how somber parts of the end are. He sort of barges in there, starts punching people around the place, gets kicked around himself, and then makes fun of Wink as he's being dragged to his crushed in a meat grinder death. Well, but it's, it is made very, very clear that that is not how one behaves in the company of decent beings, even if those mm. beings are trolls. Who is successful in this sequence? Yeah, I know. Which, but that's the, like, he has to be kind of flying high and he's like, he's America at that point. What America does is it has a nosy in some place, some war-torn, fucked-up place, and that looks for oil or chocolate or whatever it wants. <laughs> and all the indigenous people obviously get pissed off. <laughs> then that this is the pride before the fall because the elemental sequence comes almost immediately after that and he is taken aback I mean in the troll market sequence he literally punches a dude into a walk full of burning oil hmm. and it's just like a thing that happens and a bunch of people go around and I'm like oh did they just eat that dude what's going on <laughs> like that's real weird and dark in the in the background Oh, additionally, I'd say uh, the uh, the guy um, Brian Steele who plays uh, Wink also played um, uh, Samael in the original, uh, and and plays yeah. Cathedral Head, the uh, guy that um, uh, Noala goes to see for about six seconds. Uh, but that's one of the most 
wonderful designs for a creature I have ever seen, for, mm. considering how short he's actually on screen. His, his head is architecture, and it's also eroded. Like, the, the, the mouth ended up looking a bit too busy, so they just, like, crack away at that, and then it became this sort of insectoid fused with a building with these, like, little blinking big eyes, and then it's gone. But it's just this wonderful moment of... Um, of of rarity and and we're sold this repeatedly throughout the film that these are things that will not last and they hide for a reason and what hellboy is trying to save what hellboy is trying to uphold is a level of uniformity and conformity and brickwork banality which is what you said earlier of, of just like a, the the not especially specialness that humankind spreads out across the globe. Mm. Yeah. Crushing everything unique as it does so. Mm. But it's it's yeah. um the the outcome of all of this is to restore a balance that exists in the beginning when Broom is telling the story the opening line is at the dawn of time man beast and magical creature lived in harmony that's mm. what they're trying to get back not for the magical creatures to win um, but for there to be a balance um, the, this is and again this ties in with um, some of the Lord of the Rings themes the idea that what mankind brings to the world is imbalance because it insists on having more than its fair share which the locust imagery that the tooth fairies um, bring kind yeah. of fits in with the idea that you land and you take over everything. And Nuara has looked at that in his long years in exile, and he has accepted that humans will not stop. It, that the he describes it that there is a hole in your heart that you cannot fill. Yeah, and which he later refers to as greed. Yeah, uh, this is something that we never got to say in our Kung Fu Panda 2 podcast, but we will eventually revisit that. But it's a wonderful thing that uh, Michelle Yeoh's Ram character, the sage, says to the, the, the mad prince, Gary Oldman, the cup you are trying to fill has no bottom. And that simple little statement can define most of the world's evil right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And the idea that men, above all desire power hmm. and that's it's it, the power to have more than your balanced share but Nuada has observed this and decided that there can be no peace there can be no balance the humans will keep eating and so he levels at Hellboy at the end which holocaust will you choose it's either them or us he has decided that there is no other choice hmm. he kill all the humans that balance can be brought about hmm. Or, or the humans kill everything magical. And we'll talk about the uh, elves in a moment because it's a, it's a big, big theme. Mm. That, just on the tail end of that, that presents a question about what other purpose the BPRD might have. Because they are ostensibly, they were created in order to control mythical and magical stuff and how it overlaps with the human world um but we uh talked about the parallel with um men in black which the that that shot where it cuts down the corridor and you see all the the squiddy creatures in the background mm-hmm. really made me think of men in black and you said oh the exactly the bprd deal with the uh, the magical and men mm-hmm. in black deal with the um the sci-fi yeah um but 
there's another purpose to the Men in Black. It's not just about controlling and um, eliminating aliens. It's about maintaining a balance. It's about maintaining a truce. And, and to an extent, that's what the BPRD need to be doing, not just protecting humans from the magical, but preserving the magical and protecting that from the humans. Well, thinking about that, since all of the you know real agents in the BPRD are themselves magical beings, isn't it almost like a like a zoo of a sorts where these are the okay ones because they help protect us as long as they're within our walls and they're controlled, which definitely leads some words to be spoken about how the ending of this movie rolls out mm-hmm. because you know it, it's this movie is all about you know humanity over like crushing the the magical world underneath them but the magical world just gets crushed like like there's no positive spin at the end of this film that would suggest that there's a balance that's going to be reached it's just that humanity will continue consuming and the magical creatures will continue to live on the fringes and the magical creatures that have been the trained pets of the humans decide we're not going to do that anymore we're going to go go it on our own Mm. yeah yeah that's true so yeah maybe that's that's the thing that's what they could have been um that's what this department could have done but it's failed to do so maybe without broom's guiding hand Mm. yeah speaking of the bprd uh there was a film that came out in 2013 when hellboy 3 could have come out with this same budget instead uh, and that's ripd anyone seen that no, but I've I've heard things about it. Not good things. It's not terrible. good things. It is terrible. The the, the premise is that uh, there's a, a ghost police force, and when you die, you go uh, on to be judged by uh, heaven. But they they might pull your your spirit aside and say, "Hey, you can work for us. It'll uh, improve your standing." And uh, Ryan Reynolds is killed by uh, Carl from Ghost, and um, the, it's Kevin Bacon, but he's literally killed for the same reasons that Carl from Ghost killed Sam. And uh, then he wants to go back to his grieving widow, uh, much just like Demi Moore in Ghost. Uh, but he's got to help out Jeff Bridges from True Grit. Uh, you know, literally speaking in the same way that when he was roast to cockbird. It's a little bit Ghostbusters. It's a lot Men in Black. Or at least it's trying to be a lot Men in Black. It's more like a lot Men in Black 2. And there's a little bit of BPRD in there. And they chase around the, the, the CG in it. Do you remember the Image Movers digital films? Uh, Beowulf, Monster House... The one that everyone will remember is, of course, the Polar Express. Uh, oh. Mars Needs Moms and uh, the Jim Carrey Christmas Carol. Those films that were the Uncanny Valley distilled into Precisely. its raw essence. And when yeah. you watch the whole film in context, it's all Uncanny Valley. And you can kind of relax your eyes and sort of like, it, it all looks terrible. In fact, even the baby in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, when he sort of like, the baby goes up towards the camera. You're like, you really didn't need to do the close-up on that CG baby. But all... All the CG in RIPD looks like that. So they've crossed live action with an Image Movers digital movie. So, oh, it looks like shit. It, they spent $130 million making this movie <gasps> look terrible. That film cost $130 million? And it made $78 million. That's so too much. All they did was dig throw a hole and throw $52 million down it and then bury it. You could have made a half a Hellboy 3 for that. You could have made a whole of Hellboy 3 for the 130 million and not made RIPD. 
Like probably still with like, Well, Guillermo wasn't yeah. available at the time. Do you know what? Put it in a bank. Just wait. Just wait. He'll be done with Pacific Rim in a bit. He'll be yeah. Yeah, you know what? Suddenly, suddenly he's available for Hellboy 3. Do you guys want to do Hellboy 3? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How about not doing RIPD? This <laughs> exercise in generica. Honestly, watching it, it's not that it's bad. It's just really dull. And we've seen everything about it in other better films. It made me angry to watch, but not furious. It just kind of made me sad that they were so desperate to throw that money away. They just didn't care about quality. This is the opposite of a Del Toro film. As is, I might add, Pacific Rim Uprising. I know that some of you guys out there, we love you. I have one particular guy I know, Alistair, who loved Pacific Rim, also loves Uprising. I don't know how. But God damn, did I hate that movie. <laughs> anyway, I just, like, I am never not going to be upset that Del Toro didn't get to do The Hobbit. And I'm never not going to be upset that Del Toro didn't get to do Hellboy 3. That's the real sad thing. Because, like, obviously, this, uh, th- this movie deals in, 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 in a great deal of melancholy. Uh, and, and things that um, are unfixable, as you guys say. It doesn't end on that happy note. There's no sort of the day is saved, the balance is like maybe we can forge ahead. It's fucked. It is implied that the magic will continue to be eradicated from the world and Hellboy, Liz and Abe and Kraus no longer want to be part of that. And so they're going to go it alone. So let's talk about Kraus, or as I've put here, animated mist. You had a theory, Sharon, on what he brings to the party. Um, well, I mentioned it when we were um, talking about Hellboy 1, because yeah. he is absent from that. Um, but what? He... Oh, you, you get a lot of Myers in Hellboy 1, though. You do get an awful lot you of You must Myers. have loved the Myers-less yeah. film this represents, Lauren. <laughs> oh, oh, it was so wonderful. It what's, was a treat. What's even better about <laughs> the fact that Myers is not here is how dishonorably they deal with his absence. He in a line. a line. Oh, yes, we transferred him to Antarctica. He said he liked the cold. The end. <laughs> and that was Myers gone. It's almost like Del Toro hated Myers as well. Oh, yeah. It's almost like he was inserted just because of a note that they received from the studio and not actually had any purpose to play in the plot. Must have um, handsome, bland white guy. Yeah. The, the Johnny template, I believe you call it. Mm-hmm. Uh I love the fact that that sort of implies that at some point he tried to ask uh, Liz out and got burned so hard that they had to send him to Antarctica for it. Mm. (laughs) He completes the elemental square. Of course. uh, Because, uh, like I said, with the first one, Hellboy is Earth. Uh, because his hand is made of stone. Liz is fire, for obvious reasons. Abe is water, for equally obvious reasons. And Kraus is literal air. He need he, the the suit is very interesting, but the suit is not him. That mm. is merely a containment unit for his self. Much like our clothes are. <laughs> and and uh, the design your of clothes Krauss. can't contain you. No, they can't. <laughs> your clothing contains your meat husk. Yeah. Your zombie, yeah. your ghost is piloting. Um, but my flesh love- Gundam, I call it. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> At least it's not a flesh Voltron. Um, oh yeah, because no, yeah. No. <laughs> My um, legs don't turn into tigers stick anymore. Stick yourself together in the morning. <laughs> yeah, just, wait, wait, does that mean that Frankenstein's monster is a flesh Voltron? Yes. What yes. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Canon. 
Anyway, I love the fact that Kraus, the, just the visual design of the character, just implies that there's so much more to him and so much more history mm. to, than, than we're given. And it, it's fine. It just adds texture to the character and makes him more than like, – because, you know, he's literally a vaporous mist and he's 800,000 times more a character than Myers was. Mm. And Myers had a face. And Krauss has, like, little mandible things that, that talk. And he's so expressive. Uh, and even, like, the design of the – it's almost like a deep-sea diver suit, mm. kind of throwing it back to, like, the older, like, Victorian technology. And he's seen looking at the mask of Cronin from the first movie. And there's uh, there was talk that Cronin – and he had – all kinds of like history. We don't know what that history is because they never made the third film, but that implies that they cross paths. That the Kraus is like actually much older than the rest of the characters. He actually goes back to like the early 1900s, mm-hmm. and that's just so compelling. Like there's so much there. Ah, he's so good. I love that character and the fact that he's so capable as well. He's he is another uh, potential father figure for. Uh, Hellboy mm. and he he brings something that they have lacked previously as well aside from symbolically um, which is what goes with the air element which is intellect and logic and knowledge um, and scientific understanding Abe kind of uh, carried that a lot for the first film this one he is somewhat preoccupied he does but there's a reason i think there's a reason for that as well the f- water is symbolic of um emotions now emotions don't go how many without- emotions is fish <laughs> Stop. um it's it's not that emotions don't go with knowledge um and abe does have a lot of understanding about things but he think about it it all comes from books he hasn't interacted with the world and what they put the emphasis on in this movie is his naivety um the fact that he is incredibly authentic incredibly true to himself um and uh, but as a result the the uh the most effective way for him to communicate is not through intellectualized discussion it's through touch it's through palm to palm expressing himself just purely through here feel what's inside yeah and it it's basically the difference between like crystal intelligence and liquid intelligence and and abe has a lot of crystal intelligence the idea of like this like learned book knowledge like you said while kraus is actually way more capable of doing things with the information and he's way more of a leader that's one of the things that i feel like the 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 team the scooby gang was missing in the first film is broom acts in that role to a certain extent but he's way back he's not like in the fray he's like way back consulting with abe and then dies and there's not really like a leadership role by that's taken on by any of the characters at the end of the first movie except maybe what's his name uh jeffrey tambor's character manning, manning. yeah he manning. tries to to lead but uh, he keeps getting out of his depth and it seems like he got drafted to the bprd from a, a completely different department and actually doesn't like monsters at all mm, yeah. i imagine that he got in trouble for something and they sent him here as a punishment that yeah, was like the impression he, that i got i think he hints at that actually speaking of manning um <clears throat> just while we're on the subject he's about the only character that i actually feel gets hard done by between the first and the second yeah i prefer him in the first one 
Hmm. Oh, yeah, I agree, actually. He he's, feels as though they've way oversimplified him in the second one, and yeah. he has very little to do. He's a simple asshole that Hellboy needs to grow out mm. of, of having to say yes, sir, to. Um, and he's a bit of crusty old Dean as well. Like He's, he's the, the killjoy who approves of uh, Krauss, and Krauss and Hellboy form this kind of immediate Scott Summers Wolverine um, like dynamic of, you know, well, I'm going to be the one who tells you how we are going to be moving forwards, and I'm going to be the one making racial slurs. It's funny that you should use that, actually, because I was about to say when uh, Lauren was talking about Broom leading from the rear, he's the Charles Xavier, and yeah. Krauss is the Scott leading the actual team in yeah. battle. Yeah, and and there's something to be said about that, because, you know, you said that you felt Krauss was more of um, like a father figure, and I, I didn't quite get that myself but i definitely got him as a leadership position and possibly just like a respectable masculine influence that was sorely missing because there's something to be said um since this film is still about hellboy coming to like terms with growing up and and such and becoming hellman i guess um the uh there's there's an importance of having like masculine role models that are not only someone you can eventually look up to, but somebody who will call you on your bullshit. And that's so exemplified by the locker room scene. Yeah. It's it's so good where, you know, Hellboy's like, yeah, whatever. Oh, no, I accidentally killed him. And then Krauss just whoops him and is like, look, son, <laughs> I've been around the block a few times and and just like strolls down the hallway, like singing. And it's wonderful. And it, it's that leadership position was just so missing in the team. And and it just I would watch like an entire TV series about the four of these just tackling monster of the oh, week elements. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that particular scene as well. I love the fact that it takes place in a literal locker room because how many times do you hear people try to explain oh, away shitty behaviour by saying exactly mm. that's just locker room talk? That's just how guys are in the locker room. Well, here is a guy being different from that in a locker room, and he's using a much more uh, fluid approach to deal with a very solid problem. And uh, I mean, I will say this multiple times about Del Toro regarding multiple films. I love the fact that he presents numerous different approaches to masculinity and ways to be a man. And it doesn't even necessarily put a judgment on them. It doesn't say this is the right way and this is the wrong way. It just says there are multiple ways. You get to choose the way that's right for you. The uh, helmet uh, functions of uh, Krauss's outfit stemmed from an initial design for the helmet of Master Chief when Del Toro was originally going to be involved in some sort of Halo project. And I am now beyond sick to death of Microsoft not doing a Halo film. What the fuck, guys? Like, all of these, like, little TV things and specials and shorts and, and ads and films and, like, not quite things and Netflix things and animated things. Like, how fucking hard is it to make a film? By the way, this is not me saying we, the fans, demand. This is... Microsoft, you clearly want to make a Halo film. There are ways of making this happen. And I would say just get a really talented director and a a production team together and and go ahead and make it based on the original game or some version of events that ties us back to the original game. But I read a post from uh, James Mangle, director of Logan, the other day, saying that creators like him are now looking at how fans are behaving, how entitled 
toxic and disgusting they are, weighing up how much they're going to be crucified if they take, in his case, the Boba Fett film, and thinking, is this even worth it? That's what fandom has done. So I reiterate again, fandom is dead as of 2017, killed by fans. Yeah, well, I mean, that would just be, when when he mentioned that in the commentary, I I had a moment where I was like, that would be probably the best Halo thing, like media, yeah. would be a film that, that Del Toro oh, Del did. Toro, yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, I have very specific hot takes on the Halo series. <laughs> o- ODST is the best one, don't at me. But um, <laughs> I remember from back in the day when you insisted on that. I'm not going to argue with you, actually. It's, it's great. Um, but in the meantime, have a steampunk Spartan. But yeah, yeah. yeah, oh my goodness! But like, like oh. the, the the little tsh, the little panels that come off of Krause's uh, helmet while he's talking, just to animate him, to make like in his constant moving of his hands to make it him expressive, even when he doesn't have a face. Because uh, you know, from Del Toro's point of view, he was like, you know, well, you try uh, making a, a face mask look animated. And it's like, well, Iron Man did just a few months before, but it's fine, 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 fine. Um, but uh, like the like, he at least had eyes in his day del toro wanted master chief to be really like uh ex- like physically expressive and clearly microsoft went no he has a cr- like a bmx helmet and that's it and they still haven't worked out even though the, we've had 10 years of a, a camera right up in robert downey jr's face within the iron man suit to present an alternative way of doing master chief it's like well, we can't do that then people would see his face and know that he's sam worthington speaking <laughs> of the uh the parallels between kraus and cronin actually um we mentioned in the hellboy one show about seeing cronin in repose and how important that was to him gaining that extra dimensionality as a character that the other villains did not have. Mm. Um, And I could have misinterpreted this scene, but you get a similar thing with Kraus in that it cuts to him in his office and he appears to be making doll's house furniture. Mm. And it it just came across to me as like, this is the little hobby thing that he does to, to chill out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's his little bit of humanity that he's kept with him even after he's shuffled off the mortal coil, as it were. Um, and the the uh, comment about the expressiveness with his hands, that's a tactic that um, I'm really familiar with just because it's something that you do for fursuiting mm. that, of you know, course. I – you know, I go to fur cons and things like that. I've suited myself, but it's a thing where, like, you actually go to panels at these conventions because you know the face doesn't move a whole lot in most of those suits. Maybe the mouth can open. Some of them have motors in the ears and the eyes, but at most of your expressiveness has has to be from the neck down. It ends up being a lot of hand motions, a lot of like torso motions, and it, it, there's something about the way that he portrayed that that felt very familiar to me. Hmm. And I would say also from a perspective of somebody who is not terribly facially expressive um, for various reasons that I won't go into, but it, it sometimes if I want to communicate a, a, a level of emotionality to somebody that I don't think I can rely on my face to get across, it will either come out in the tone of my voice or there will be gestures, there will be touch or embrace or something like that something physical um, suggestion that, that gets it across backpack different colored hats you can get your green i'm fine hat 
Or you're, you're red, I'm super pissed, make America great again hat. I, I already thought, actually, I, I'm going to pinch Lyra's inside-out socks. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, changing your socks, you've got to sit down, you've got to take off your shoes. You can whip a hat off and on. Like, if someone suddenly pisses you off, you're, off, you're like, right, to the backpack. Fumph. <laughs> I now I just imagine like Sharon like somebody makes her angry and she just like makes constant eye contact and just slowly takes the hat off that she had on <laughs> without breaking that eye contact just putting another hat on top of her head never never changing her facial expression and just like what just happened that'd be so unsettling <laughs> she has a lovely smile when when she actually has something to smile there are times when it's like it's it's immediately obvious because you're glowing from the inside that you're happy and then there are occasionally other times i'm like are you alive (laughs) what is that i think we're having a conversation you're waving your hand in front of my eyes going are you still awake (laughs) Mm. okay so some of these times maybe when you're trying to sleep so (laughs) i did think it was pretty weird whenever we met that you wore that porcelain mask all the time (laughs) (laughs) i just have to be very careful not to trip (laughs) <laughs> okay, so Hellboy and Abe's drunken, brotherly, lovesick blues. We're playing this in a slightly interesting uh, clip and, and, and bouncing around throughout the film here because certain things are clustered together because they are related. But um, the putting on of the Barry Manilow, like I said, this feels like Guardians. Like, this was weird in 2008 for them to do that. This is normal now. Like, you could put on a Barry Manilow uh, love song and people would go, oh, that was a great moment. As opposed to, that was weird. They were listening to a Barry Manilow song. I'm not sure I like that film. It was silly. Some people uh, uh, said that uh, you know, they, they're particularly looking forward to this particular uh, Del Toro film being talked about because they've been told that Hellboy 2 is silly by twits. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is silly, yeah, but that's not a bad thing, like, at all. You will learn to obey me, follow protocol, and stay focused at all times. Uh, that word, focused? Yeah, with your accent, I wouldn't use it that much. I knew Professor Broom, young man. You didn't know Professor Broom? Yes, I did. Shut After up. my Shut accident, up. he designed this container suit. A wonderful man, and even then, he was very hey, about your future. He- Stop it! Right now. Oh, what? Are you threatening me? Because I think I can take you. Excuse me? You heard me. I couldn't hear you from uh, all the way over there. I can take you because you have one fatal flaw. Oh, I want to hear it. No, you don't. You can't take criticism. Try me. Can't take it. What's my flaw? Your temper. It gets the best of you. Makes you weak. Makes you vulnerable. And regarding Prince Nuada, like, we get to know his reason for doing this. He speaks, as you say. And, and, and he's the main villain as opposed to the henchman. So there's a dynamism in the way he acts, which is different. And, and, and has more of a kind of your it's a more of a personal situation for him and 
there's even something in the dynamic between him and his henchman, Mr. Wink, because Mr. Wink's just a mercenary. Nuada just paid him to do this because hmm. whenever um, right before he dies from shooting his hand into the big grinder thing, apparently he's what he's saying to Hellboy is like, you know, I'm like, I'm just I'm like, basically, I was hired to do this. Like now, how am I going to afford to buy a new hand? Like, I, I can't believe you just did that. And he just, <laughs> he's like frustrated at the situation. And that's why he doesn't have much else, because he's just a mercenary monster. But like, even that has like, some kind of texture. It's not just what's her name, Ilsa being like, I did it because I love you because you're Rasputin, the Russia's greatest love machine. And <laughs> that's and and that's literally the entirety of her character. Like, you know, okay, well, you're immortal now. You really didn't change in the 60 plus years. Like, you have a hell of a torch, lady. Like, what are you doing? And, and, the, and this similarly, guy's like, Rasputin's like sort of, I have looked into the eye of chaos. I don't know, he's German. I have looked into the eye of chaos and all I saw was disharmony. And it's like, yeah, okay. Have you got anything else in there, Rasputin? Yes, I have chaos in here. And I have seen the face of the monolithic gods that dwell outside our realm. Yep, okay. Like you, right. You you would not be much fun to have a conversation with. That's Ronan. Yeah. Although we might get more texture to Ronan in Captain Marvel, we which might. I would be really fascinated to see. I'd like to. That's Ronan as he is now, then. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but it's yeah, no. The, like uh, the the difference between obviously Ronan ranks at the bottom of a lot of people's Marvel uh, villains, whereas Killmonger way up tippity top, and that's mm. that's what we're talking because about. Because he from has multi layered motivation. Because he we see him make choices. That's the other thing. Um, Rasputin makes like one choice at mm. the beginning of the movie, and then everything else that he does, it just comes off that one choice. One choice, it sucks his eyes out. <laughs> and he doesn't then decide maybe that was a bad choice. Mm. That immediately makes him unrelatable. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, he's seen chaos, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you say unrelatable. I mean, you know, if you see the Outer Gods and your choices are be devoured now or be filled with our evil to bring about the end of the world, I know which I'm going to choose. I I found Rasputin was very relatable. No, not at all. (laughs) But he doesn't have the the, the comedy of Benny, who's decided the exact same thing. It is better to be by the side of the devil than in his even Even Benny, that's the thing. Benny is constantly making the choice to do whatever Imhotep has just told him to do. Mm. Like I say, Rasputin makes the one choice, then hands over the eyes, because then he doesn't have to see the consequences. This one's on you, Cthulhu. And then he just just carries on. But Nuada, on the flip side of that, is constantly making choices. He is constantly at uh, crossroads where he could, at any time, drop this quest. I mean, yes, all right, he's crossed the line of killing his father and that is huge. And that is a big part of what makes him so driven to go in this one direction. But because he is relatable, because he is identifiable and very human in the way he feels and the way he grieves, that's that's a thing that happens with people. They cross a particular line and then that thing will stick in their head 
as, well, uh, there's no way I can go back. Because I have this deep shame, I have to continue on this line of being terrible because I did this bad thing. Are you saying that if a man decided he was going to do something that he considered terrible and then crossed the line, maybe even if he had that line taken away from him and wasn't able to, he might, in a moment of rage not be thinking entirely logically and punch Thanos in the face when he probably shouldn't have done, so it's entirely forgivable and everyone should shut the fuck up about that <laughs> Why, yes, get off Alex, his back. I think I am saying exactly that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, you deal with everything he's dealing with and then make the entirely logical decision, folks. Yes. We're While not, standing in front of Thanos. We're not robots. Big purple thumb. We're not robots may as well be the subtitle of Avengers Infinity War. We're not robots. We don't do the entirely, wholly, coldly logical thing. No. And you, the- complainer, you wouldn't either, so shush. <laughs> well, the good part about that is Doctor Strange would have seen that whenever he saw the possible future, oh, no, so it was supposed that. to happen. Yeah, it's cool. But anyway, what you you're didn't saying see though, that coming. <laughs> <laughs> what you were saying though about Infinity War actually reminds me of your opening remarks in that podcast, Alex, about not going quietly into into the night, like yeah. reading that poem, because in another context with a different narrative, Nuwana's the hero. Oh, absolutely. Where yeah. like he's refusing to back down to overwhelming force i mean how many movies and stories are about like the lone or like the small band of humans that are like striving against like the madness around them and refusing to go quietly Mm. uh like literally in any other in another context he would be the hero yeah and he's trying to keep his people alive absolutely but he he simultaneously recognizes the futility and the destructiveness of the fact that he's doing that and that's why when it gets to the end where he has the fight with Hellboy um, and gets to the point where he has to yield because Hellboy's not going to kill him his his line is you have to kill me I won't stop I am not giving this quest up even though he knows it's futile he's not going to achieve what he wants to achieve and yet he he wants to be killed in a way, he he actually has a lot of like character DNA with like V from V for Vendetta, yeah. where it's like this society that's all around him that he's just striving against, and in the end, he real he's like, I you know I may uh, Nuwata fails and V succeeds, but even at the end, V's like I can't be alive in this new world that we're creating because I am not that kind of person, mm. and but it's still that very like driven, and again, like I said could be the hero in another take on this. Absolutely. And it comes down to that idea of everybody thinks they're righteous. Um, even even a villain believes that the thing that they're doing is, is for good. By that same token, V, the woman-kidnapping, gaslighting anti-hero, could in fact be a villain. And Luke Goss's performance is, again, one of my favorite villain performances of all time. This guy's hardly, like, he's been in a load of stuff, most of it looking straight to DVD. He has been in loads, but his most famous roles are Blade 2 and Hellboy 2. There's an indignance in his performance. There is a delicacy. There's a, it's not just blind rage. It's not just hate. There's sadness and melancholy and and everything about what is slipping away is twinned with him there's there's a wonderful shot where like he's talking to hellboy on top of the building and and hellboy's shooting the elemental very very slowly and like 
willfully taking this incredibly rare beast out of the world as Nuada tells him that it's gone forever now. And then Hellboy looks away and then he looks back up and the prince is gone. I don't know whether this intentionally conveys the idea that what is being taken away is so ephemeral, is so fleeting, and when it disappears, we'll wonder if it was ever there in the first place, simply because its absence is so numbing. I think I spent the whole film wanting Nuada to live and see the, the, the error in his ways. Same as with Killmonger. I was willing him to have a change of heart. And when he says, you must kill me, I will not stop, he says, I cannot. And it is an assurance about himself. And the way GDT lays it down is he is a principled villain. He has something to fight for. It's Hellboy and Liz and Abe who are deciding, actually, no, we we don't want to fight for ideals. Technically, they're being selfish in that they care about each other. He cares about people, his people in a kind of a general sense. They care about each other as an individual group, much like the Guardians of the Galaxy. They will save the galaxy because they're one of the idiots who live in it. But um, their choice at the end is for personal love. And it, it's very much tied in with how Liz deals with the Angel of Death. When given the full gravity of the situation. Mm. A principle being linked to almost an all-consuming identity to the point where I think with both Nuada and Killmonger, part of the reason that they can't back down is that if they do, who are they? Mm. Everything they have has been poured into their cause. They've tattooed their cause on their skin. Absolutely. And that, that leaves very little left for them. Now, you actually see this in Golden Army because you have the mirror of Nuada's uh, willingness to dedicate himself to the cause and self-sacrifice and Nuala's literal self-sacrifice for the sake of the cause. Because he does not do what she has to do what she is on a path to do from the from word go in this film. Noala actually has a really, really short arc mm. because she agrees to be sacrificed in order to stop her brother at the very beginning of their story. When we first meet them. Yeah. They they have the challenge and he um, and it's pointed out that if he is killed she will die too and she is asked if if she accepts this. He says, are you all right with this? And she says, yes, I am. Yeah, and what she's accepting there is her own death. Yeah. And then it gets to the end of the film, and she does precisely that. So feasibly, like the uh, the, the, pe- the quill haters could say, well, why doesn't Nuala run out of the uh, room and then be given like half a second uh, on her own, drive a dagger into her own heart, killing Nuala, possibly even in time to save her father? Why doesn't she do that? Uh, we cling to life. We, she's trying to find help. She's trying to find some way to get around this. And she's frightened. Her ultimate sacrifice is just sweet loss as well, because she now has more, having met Abe, to lose. There is always more to lose. Truth based on shame. The humans... The humans have forgotten the gods, destroyed the earth, and for what? Parking lots, shopping malls, 
Greed has burned a hole in their heart that will never be filled. They will never have enough. Look at this place. Where is the honor in it? Father, you were once a proud warrior. When did you become their pet? I have returned from exile to wage war and reclaim our land, our birthright. And for that, I will call upon the help of all of my people, and they will answer. The good. The bad. And the worst. I'm sorry, Father. Are you at peace with your king's verdict? I am, my brother. I am. Then very well. Death it is. So she has to complete this very, very simple arc and realise that this was simply bonus time. Mm. This was well, just the... a, a fleeting extra moment. Yeah, at the beginning she has hope. She hopes that her brother will yield rather mm. than be killed. And she it's it's when he says, I cannot, I cannot stop, she realises mm. this is literally the only end to this that can be. Mm. Well, she also sneaks away because she thinks she can destroy the map. And if you can destroy the map, then you can never find the Golden Army. So then it doesn't matter that you have the crown. Yeah. So, But then once that's done and there's just no, there's just no option, that's what she... she does the only thing she can do to like save uh, Abe and the rest of them. Absolutely. And again, that idea of there being multiple choices, multiple solutions to this problem. You can defeat Noada in a way that doesn't kill him. You can uh, keep the pieces of the crown separate so that he can't find them. You can secrete the map so that he can't locate the army. As soon as Gamora realised they were going to deal with Thanos... Why didn't Gamora just put a pistol to her head and blow it off and just go, right, well, I know this thing and I need to not know it, so boom. No, no talking to Pete about it. Like, if, if everyone behaved like this, everyone would go, right, rationally speaking, the human race is going to wipe itself out by continuing along these, this path. So it makes the most sense if we all commit suicide right now. That's a fucking Heaven's Gate cult. <laughs> Yeah, but also this is a fairy tale. Like, there's yes. a certain beat to it. Like, you know how this film's going to end uh, within the beginning of it. They specifically mentioned that only those of royal blood can mm. wield the crown. Yeah. It's like, well, okay, obviously Hellboy is going to challenge at some point, so clearly that happens at the end. It's the, the Chekhov's magic blood. Absolutely. Um, and Broom says a challenge must be answered, which is then echoed by Noala at the end. Yes, and and then when as soon as you see the oh they are physically bound when uh, Nuada takes the hit to the face and starts bleeding out of his nose, you see that's like oh well obviously Nuala is going to have to die to kill Nuada, and it's going to make sense if she did it herself, like because that's just the beats of a story of this nature, and the 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 part about this that's so good is like it might be predictable. 
but it's a heck of a journey to get to the point where you're already knowing where it's going to go. Absolutely. And it's it's how those beats are played. Yes, we know from the beginning that Noala is going to have to die in order that Noada can be defeated as well. Um, but what we don't necessarily predict is that um, those... The, this, this is one of my favourite... Um, fragments of a scene in the whole thing is where you have those the, the two parallel deaths going on you have uh, Nuada mirroring Hellboy in colouring and intent they are both princes of lost kingdoms um, they've both rejected their crown for personal reasons um, because they want to do something that their father doesn't want them to do or in Hellboy's case he doesn't want to do something that his father does want him to do um, and then you've got um, Abe uh, and they're, they're talking about death and war and then you've got Abe and Noala using their last moments to express love and uh, and caring for each other and then it's it's like they feel very separate, very divided, but in his last, his very last moments, what Noada chooses to do is turn away from the discussion about death with Hellboy and reach out to his sister. He, he can never reach her, and that's the tragedy, but that he chooses to do that, to me, almost gives him a redemption, even if it's just for that half a heartbeat. Liz's journey this time, uh, her fire has changed. The it's blue in the first one. They they went out of their way to uh, to, to give it a, a distinction there. But uh, the suggestion that it's actually cooled down a little and is now orange uh, suggests that she's getting uh, more mature, more able to control her power, and she's not a girl really anymore here. Mm-hmm. She's a she's a woman, or she's she's almost all all of the way there. And um, which is you could argue is indicated by the fact that she cuts her hair. Yeah, um, there's, there's an old-fashioned well. thing about um, young girls have long hair and, and wear it long, and mature women either cut it or wear it up. Mm. And say, not to mention that with the change of the color, it's it's also representative of her embracing the monster inside kind of idea. So she's gaining more control of her power, but it's through acceptance of it and who she is and that she's not quite human. And since the warmer colors are representative of the magic world and the blues are more representative of the human world, that like the more that she was trying to be human, the less control she had and the hotter the flames burned at, at, with the blue. And then you know the reverse is she's becoming more comfortable with it and learning to control it and learning to embrace that part of her. Which, again, ties in with the idea that if you repress a part of yourself, it's going to come out, but it's going to come out destructively and you won't have any control over it. Hmm. 
So obviously she's freaking out because she finds out from Abe that she's pregnant and she has to grow up really fucking fast. And the sticking point is, of course, that Hellboy is immature in a way that is like biologically worrying to her in that he's had a long time. He has had, at this stage, 64 years to to grow the fuck up. And uh, they mention in the first movie with a throwaway line here or there that suggests that he's technically, emotionally speaking, in his early 20s. They say he's barely out of his 20s, 20s, but that would imply that he's 30, 31. He's not 30, 31. Emotionally speaking, no. (laughs) He's still 18, 19. He's barely out of his teens, is what they mean. And that's, you know, obviously part of Hellboy's charm. And, And in the comics, he does become more mature over time. Uh, but the you know Liz is freaking out because she's she wants to stay with him, but everything about him suggests he's not going to be a fantastic dad. So he's got to learn really, really suddenly, quickly to be a dad, and and that's really the core story going on here. You said it was a monster of the week episode. It it totally is, and it's dealing with some of the best drama in this in the series. Mm. You know, as they're dealing with this monster. This brings us on to Liz's confrontation with the Angel of Death. I love the fact that Hellboy gets taken down at the beginning of Act 3 and it's handed over to Liz to drive the plot. And although you you said that uh, Cronin's an excellent leader, Liz is the one who decides they're going to go off the resort, do their own thing, go off and, and, and get Hellboy fixed. And the Angel of Death scene is one of the most striking, memorable, spine tingling cinematic moments that are of my entire life and it's it's up there with when i first saw ghostbusters and raiders of the lost ark there is something otherworldly about this and doug jones always does a fantastic job but here it's it's like it's even more creepy than the fawn it's chilling yeah and there is an ambiguity to uh, the Angel of Death and the fact that the that Del Toro very deliberately took the eyes off the original sculpture and went, no, 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 Angel of Death cannot see you, frankly doesn't care. Very sort of detached from, from this whole, whole situation and is blind to anybody else's suffering and only really cares about the situation at hand, mm-hmm. which is at this stage, okay, let us strike a deal. Doug Jones's signature hand movements, uh, you know, he's kind of on fire here with this, and that's sort of the, the hands and the face. One character that um, uh, Mignola has worked with repeatedly in the comics from Russian folklore, and one of my favorite um, mythological figures, Baba Yaga. And he very specifically said, don't use Baba Yaga to GDT when Del Toro asked. So he's like, well, okay, we'll come up with the angel of death. But that's what was going to be in this original scene. And it retains the spirit of the best written folktales about Baba Yaga, that sense of the frightening ambiguity in that she could go either way. Mm, Yeah. I was going to say she's morally neutral, but it's not quite that. It's that she is morally... Um, she is she is amoral and could go whatever way depending on her whim on that particular day. So she's a chaotic neutral, if yeah. you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think um, see, my chaotic neutral was uh, uh, Mortimer. So that kind of makes sense, actually. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. 
Also, you say about the eyes, this was something that really struck me with this one. Del Toro's thing is eyes where eyes shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> the angel of death has eyes. They're yeah. just not She's on her face. She's got a shed load they're of eyes. The they're in the wings. Yeah. They're just not on her head. But if, She's observing but not looking like she's observing. It's very difficult to see the symbols on the floor. That angel of death is... Hellboy's Angel of Death. It's very specifically planning out and mapping out the movements of his life. Uh, you see the the, the symbol that uh, sh- um, that shows it's for Anung Unrama. One of the other symbols on that uh, board uh, is a cup of fire. That's Liz. Yes. And another one is uh, a, a, a bearded merman. That's that's Abe. These are major parts of Anung Unrama's life. And effectively, Liz is given the Infinity Stone conundrum. If you bring this guy back to life, the entire world is in danger. Will you do it for personal reasons? And she weighs up the rest of the world and decides, yeah, I will do this for love. And then she's directly told, you will suffer most of all. And she says, yes, I will still do this for love, for this one guy. I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. Yeah. I absolutely love this. And it's it's hinted at earlier on as well because um, the scene with the elemental when Hellboy steps out into the crowd and they turn on him. And despite the fact that Liz hates being stared at by people, despite the fact that she hates making a, a spectacle of herself and being um, the focus of everybody's attention, she doesn't hesitate. She walks and stands straight in front of him. Mm. And... Particularly in that context, that moment is important because it's, again, it's looking at that idea of, of what the role of a uh, a father is supposed to be, what the role of a man is supposed to be. Hellboy has just demonstrated his ability to protect a baby. Liz effectively says with her actions, a protector is not what I'm looking for. I don't need a protector. I will protect you. <laughs> And at the end, when she when they meet the Angel of Death, her her response. You say she weighs up the fate of the rest of the world. She doesn't weigh it up for very long. In a half second. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me actually of the. Um, there's a scene in one of the Firefly episodes where. Um, Mal and Wash have been kidnapped Mm -hmm. and Zoe goes to rescue them and is basically told that she has to make a choice between which one of them she wants to rescue. She said Wash before he's even finished the damn sentence. (laughs) Ah, you must choose between your captain and... Oh, you were going to make me choose? Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We did did definitely have it at some points. Indeed. That's uh, War Stories Thank is the name you. of that episode. Yes, I love that episode. This is a fantastic episode. It's my favorite one, I think. The instinctiveness with which Liz says it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the choice is. It doesn't matter what you're asking me to weigh up. I will choose him every time. And whatever consequences come to me as a result of that, I will deal with them later. Each 
restaurant. Ah, good. When can I have that which is mine? Can you save him? It is for you to decide that. It is all the same to me. My heart is filled with dust and sand. But you should know it is his destiny to bring about the destruction of the Earth. Not now, not tomorrow, but soon enough. Knowing that, you still want him to live. This film, especially after watching it with the commentary, is very much like the third film. Like it's com- We've compared it to Pan's Labyrinth, which then also means it ties back to The Devil's Backbone. And mm. the, the poem that's read in it is actually the same one from The Devil's Backbone, which is it's a great touch. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it makes a third piece to that kind of trilogy, if you will. And The, the Devil's Backbone, like we talked about, is, has like the beginnings of fairy tales – where it's it's more grounded, but it has like a little bit of the fairy tale element added to it. Pan's Labyrinth is very very hard on the fairy tales, like leaning into those themes, and then Hellboy is leaning into the modern fairy tale of the comic book of like the superhero comic book to get across many of those same themes and ideas. And I just personally love that progression, and I definitely wanted to just mention the idea that our fairy tales in the modern age are comics like and the extension of like the MCU like there's there and, and the other films that are superheroes and things like that it's just that that's our modern take on this idea of a fairy tale and the fact that del toro got the opportunity to add his personal touch and themes to that modern fairy tale aesthetic is is just such a good way to kind of end that little movement, if you will, in his work. No, absolutely. You're, you're totally right, Lauren. And I, I completely agree. Super Superheroes specifically, but comics generally um, are our modern mythology. You can even see the parallels in um, the way old style mythology works, that you get dozens and dozens of stories about the same hero and then you get reincarnations of that hero coming through in the various different layers of mythology and in superhero stories people complain about the fact that oh there's no real death in superhero stories and people just you know they come back in different forms and yes hercules Cahulan, um, you know, all of those those ancient heroes in myth, that is what they do. These are, uh, they're becoming symbolic, well, I say they're becoming, they have been for decades, uh, symbolic representations of concepts. And we're, we're telling those stories in more uh, nuanced and recognisable human ways. And that's why I think we appreciate the idea of the superhero who behaves like a real human um, rather than the superhero who, who is the, the caricature cartoonish stick figure. 
Um, well, apparently some people want them to be totally coldly logical. <laughs> they, they want everyone to be Vision. <sighs> or Batman. They want but everybody it, to be Batman. But Batman's horribly emotionally driven. I know. <laughs> so They miss so, that bit. So is Vision. At the beginning, he's like, well, why don't you stay here? Like, the obvious thing that we should do is split up again so we can be safe, like, like the protocol, like we're supposed to do. And he's the one who's telling Scarlet Witch, no, stay here with me. Emotionally driven robot. Like, huh. There's more yeah, stuff in but, there. He's not yeah. just a calculator. Mm, yeah. And... And and I'm just thinking, like, you're talking about Sharon, is thinking about, like, the Odyssey. That's, like, episodic and just prime for, like, a comic book style, like, telling. And it's just this, apparently, this kind of storytelling that is just inherent to the human experience. Mm. And it just so happens that the current manifestation is these kinds of pulpy, like, comic books. And it's it's the fact that They've been translated into movies that have resonated with the vast majority of people, I think, speaks to that. Because you could say that there are a lot of other, you know, oh, well, wouldn't our modern stories be like novels or, um, I don't know, stage plays? Um, but but those don't – like we live in a capitalist society. Value is based on on money whether we like it or not. And the biggest thing in the world right now is superhero movies. Mm. and. There's something to be said about that, that being our current fairy tales. Like, you can learn aspects of, like, life from them. <laughs> Did they have articles back in uh, ancient Greece of, is anyone else getting Greek tragedy burnout? <laughs> well, I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I think the, the, the time-appropriate equivalent, yeah, probably. So, like, in Elizabethan times, anyone getting Shakespearean drama fatigue? There was definitely that. I know for a fact there was definitely God, Shakespeare, which king are you so writing about bored today? with this same <laughs> flipping plot. All he's got is comedy or tragedy. That's it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Now I just want to make a Twitter account that's, like, historical hot takes. <laughs> oh, oh, I yes. can help you with that. Yes. Oh, that'd be so funny. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Oh, we oh could make them applicable God. to what's going on right now, but at the oh same goodness. time, boneheaded in their own right. Medea, she's such a Mary Sue. How yes. on earth does she manage to do it? We never see her learning how to turn people into dragons. Mm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It we would be so this. good. Uh, we should totally do it. Mm. <laughs> Historical oh. hot takes, just like copyright, patent pending. <laughs> Uh, there's a little bit of a, a, a an update at the very beginning of this film telling you about what the important stuff that happened at the beginning of Hellboy, and they show you that photo from the beginning of the first film. But I noticed a difference this time. Did you spot it? They had photoshopped over the actor playing a young John Hurt with an old John Hurt in a wig. <laughs> because they had him in to, to do the, uh, the the little story scene, which I love so much. I love that they got John Hurt back for this little little tiny extra bit, just to reconnect you with with Father for a moment. I wonder if that's because of like the Crispin Glover act kind of thing. Oh yeah. Well, honestly, I think they were just trying to make it so that like you would subconsciously see that character and go, okay, so that's this guy here for a few seconds later. If you were coming to it new, for example, otherwise you'd be like, oh, who's this guy? It's funny because that that picture. The only thing I was looking at was Hellboy because he's red. Yeah, and everything else is the eyes drawn. Of course, the eye. Um, And uh, then. 
the bit where Hellboy is talking about like looking forward to Santa Claus coming uh, made me really smile because there is a Hellboy short-ish comic uh, story called, uh, I think it's Christmas Underground. I could be confusing it with another one. Um, a woman has disappeared from a uh, family and they're all worried about her. She has been w- hanging around the graveyard. A tall gentleman came calling and they think this gentleman has taken her underground. And Hellboy talks to her aging, dying grandmother. He's about to leave the room and she says, I know you'll find my granddaughter. I know who you are, really. And he says, who? And she says, your father Christmas. And the first panel is Hellboy standing there looking grim. And the next panel is the exact same shot. But from her perspective, he's wearing the red clothes and the beard. It's mm. wonderful. And he's holding a little leaf as well. Yeah, That's referenced in the first movie. Mm-hmm. When Hellboy is at the... Not hospital. Santa. Yeah. Yeah. For Liz. And they tell Santa doesn't come till December. Of course. Wow, that's nice. Mm. So, she yeah. says she sees a big red man outside. Um, so it, it, it's so important that we get to see a young Hellboy again, especially like if you're like little kids in the cinema. Clearly, this made more than the first film, so more people went to see it straight off the bat who didn't see the original one. And to be able to see this little, you know, adorable version of Hellboy, it dissipates all of those like oh god this is teaching our children to worship the devil no clearly adorable kid watching howdy doody annoying his dad it's a, it's a wonderful touch when they're at the auction uh santiago segura turns up do you know who i'm talking about lauren the name's familiar, but I can't. Rem- I can't place it. He's a, a Mexican comedian that uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro is enamoured of. He was the guy in the on the train in the first one who hit Hellboy in the face with a fire extinguisher. Oh, oh, okay. He was also in Blade Two. He was that uh, guy who uh, Hellboy says, "I'll be back." So Hellboy says, <laughs> "Freud," because he fights Nuada in it. Who uh, uh, Blade says, I'll be back for you. And at the very end, he turns up back for him. And he's the uh, guy in uh, Pacific Rim who uh, says, you know, I, you know, powdered kaiju bone. What do you take that for? Male potency. <clears throat> I take it myself. He's uh, like a, a Del Toro says on his commentaries whenever he turns up, this guy is bigger in my homeland than I am. So he's, he's clearly very reverential to him. Watch out for him. He's the guy with the sort of straggly long hair who's got like a little lap dog and is freaked out by Nuada's uh, shouting at everyone. The cinema awning. Did you catch what was playing at the cinema during the uh, elemental scene, Lauren? I didn't. I was too busy looking at the big billboard that said, is it about the right time with a, <laughs> no. with a pregnant woman? That was, uh, that was when they go into the troll market. When they come out and that whole thing blows up like crazy, uh, it's see you next Wednesday. Some of the letters are missing from it, but Del Toro is friends with John Landis. So that would be why. Uh, the elemental scene reminded me as, as well as... Um, Tafiti, obviously this is pre-Tafiti. Fantasia 2000 has that wonderful nature spirit sequence at the end, which is by far the best part of it. Oh no, Rhapsody in Blue is also great. But yeah, it's a, that, oh, that wonderful, beautiful sequence. Mm. And Well, there's also Princess Mononoke. Yes, that's what I was getting around to. Yeah, the, the, the whole nature spirit side of that. And humans versus um, forest spirits, that's straight out of Mononoke. Oh yeah, and there's there's a lot of um, like anime 
overtures uh, throughout the film, especially during a lot of the combat sequences. So like, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a direct touchstone. And one more thing that uh, it reminded me of, and not a game I love, but I love this aspect of it, the unsettling feeling when you fell any of the colossi in Shadow of the Colossus. The sense that, that this is an incredible, rare, beautiful, magnificent being, and you've crawled up its body stabbed it in the head enough times that you've killed it and now it's dead and now it's gone from the world Mm. and it makes Hellboy the villain you've done a terrible thing and I love that sense of it being unsettling and uncertain in Shades of Grey and I I kind of long for Shades of Grey now in a world of growing increasingly more exhaustingly black and white Mm. also the fact that in that moment uh, Nuada echoes what went on at the end of the first movie Mm. that Hellboy was offered kingship and decided to decline um, and now he's following orders and, mm. and killing what he's told to kill. Also speaking of how the world is now, uh, Manning says, I hate YouTube. And uh, Sharon laughed and went, ha he's ahead of the curve. And I went, whoa, 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 hold on. He hates YouTube because YouTube was, back in 2008, comparatively a great tool for exposing true things that were being hidden to make Hellboy more well-known. Now YouTube is used by things like InfoWars to spread Pizzagate conspiracy theory bullshit that the school children killed in an AR-15 massacre were in fact short actors paid off by the Democratic Party in a carefully staged hoax to crack down on gun control and take away people's right to defend themselves against the government with AR-15s. To cover up the actual truth with so much ludicrous conjecture, you can't actually see the real lies being told. Because there's so much fucking bullshit out there. So, Manning, YouTube may prove quite useful in years to come. For him. For him personally, yes. Yes. All I meant was... For the rest of the world, it's catastrophic. One day, everybody will hate YouTube. (laughs) Uh, the, the reasons behind it were not really on my mind. Uh, also, uh, Mike Mignola himself is a photographer in the crowd scene during the uh, bit where the humans shun uh, Paul Hellboy just after he's uh, helped them all save their asses and uh, protected a baby. Um, the, there's also, as they get back to uh, the BPRD, this is when I started really noticing things getting led in. Like, it changes gears around about this point. Like, after the troll market... It starts getting serious, and it's a—it's got this. It, it's a great first half, but it's a magnificent second half. Um, there's a, a little bit on the TV of um, interspecies marriage as a threat to traditional family values, which, I mean, there, that is a fantastic way to sh- to to sum up conservative fear in one go. The the idea that liberals approach this in a kind of well, we really don't have a right to imprint our values on someone else just because we want them to fall in line why not just let them lead their life with conservatives arch conservatives specifically it's the other way around the idea they are afraid that moral decay will occur on a mass scale if people are allowed to do and feel and marry whatever and whoever they want to be whatever they want stability and control will break down and we will have anarchy Mm. 
Yes, let's freeze everything, just arrest it all in place because I'm terrified that the things I hold um, valuable will not be one day. And if, again, if my principles, if my values are shown to be just something I came up with and chose to hold on to, then who does that make me? All their identities are poured into the moral absolutes. And that's another reason why the Lego movie is fantastic. Because it's a microcosm of that. I was just about to say, bring the craggle! That's the craggle! Glue glue everything in place. There's a little clip of Bride of Frankenstein, one of Del Toro's absolute favourites in there. Hellboy being the monster and Liz being uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. I've never liked Bride of Frankenstein because it ends in a kind of, well, everything's fucked, smash it all, burn it down uh, point of view. Which, uh, Whereas this ends in a kind of, well, everything's fucked, Still, let's go off on Everybody our own, sucks. have some twins, and, uh, uh, and live as happy lives as we can possibly have. That's the happy ending to Bride of Frankenstein that we you know, never got. Mm. And I love that Del Toro is able to move forwards from that. Mm. Notably, uh, Hellboy begins to embrace being a monster in this second half, uh, when he's... Um, grooming himself before you know before listening to barry manilow uh he goes to file his horns and decides against it he just like the humans have just rejected him and his general mode of thinking at that point is oh fuck it you know why should i file these down to look more like you people Mm. like this is the this was the turning point for hellboy with the human race you also briefly get to see the Cronin mask, which was a... It's, it's on sale. It's on sale. <laughs> Everything about Cronin must go. It's on display in the BPRD headquarters corridors. Uh, the unfilmed post credit sequence was going to be Cronin's head being lowered onto a cyborg, Victorian cyborg body, and Rasputin stepping out of the shadows uh, and, and going, you know, magnificent, now our plan is finally coming into action. And I honestly can't see how they could have gone back to the tone of the original Hellboy or the modus operandi of the original Hellboy after this. This is an evolution of that. To go back to Rasputin is a devolution. You've got wordless Cronin and gloating, I have seen, chaos. Like, mirthlessly gloating zealot Rasputin deciding to end the world again. And and really, it feels like it would probably have, have played out in much the same way, uh, you know. But at the very, very end, maybe Hellboy and indeed Liz would have had to sacrifice themselves utterly, leaving behind the twins to to move forwards. Mm. Maybe that would have been the end, and it would have been very sad and melancholy, but with a little shade of hope. But it couldn't just have been. He Hellboy is given the choice to destroy the world again, and decides again, no, because that's not an ending. That was just the first movement of his character. And maybe Del Toro will reveal in years to come, possibly next year, what he'd planned to do. But we'll never see it, and that makes me sad all day. Ah, hello, Red. Well, you're up late. What are you listening to? Oh, uh, uh, Vivaldi. Il Cimento dell'Armonia. I particularly like hey, the last Hey, hey, what's that? Oh, just a remote. Oh, uh... This, yes, uh, popular love songs. Look, oh, hey, you fell for the princess. She's, 
She's like me, creature from another world. You need to get out more. She's alone in the world. I want to help her. I need to care for her. You're in love. Have a beer. No, oh, my body is a temple. Well, now it's an amusement park. No, no, no. The glandular balance. Just shut up and drink it, would you? What track? Eight. Can't smile without you. I know. Yep, I'm gonna need a beer too. Well, see, I love this song. And I can't smile. Or cry. I think I have no tear ducts. I wish father were here. He'd know what to tell you. Us. And finally, the um fight with uh Kraus, who, by the way, we haven't mentioned how fucking funny Seth MacFarlane is the whole way through. In a very funny movie, MacFarlane manages to be one of the funniest things in it. I am not a fan of most of Seth MacFarlane's stuff, uh, but Sharon and I do still quote the best, like, ten lines from Family Guy from seasons two, three, and some of four, repeatedly, regularly. But when he invokes Broom and talks about Hellboy's father just to get a rise out of him, Hellboy is holding Broom's um, rosary. And very notably, it's there. That's the prop, Lauren, that you're always looking for, the the little artifact that uh, defines the character. That rosary is Broom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the part of uh, Broom that Hellboy has taken to hold. Yeah, indeed. I didn't bring up the object thing this time because we pretty much talked about it last time. The only differences are Liz traded out the rubber bands for the choker, the collar, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which I love that Krause, it glows red, glows red hot as well. Oh, it's so good. And then uh, Kraus is an object. His suit is his object because that's not actually him. But again, like you know, it, it, it's still there. But I, I didn't bring it up because. It, we pretty much already covered it, but yeah, absolutely. Noardo obviously has his spear, yeah, which is a beautiful um, piece of weaponry. Yeah, and I, I, I think I feel like Nuala's is well, kind of just her clothing in general, but also that like the chunk of the crown uh, that she's holding, just like she always has it on it's her. her responsibility. That or a book, like the idea, yeah. like she like holds onto the human world through the book and, and like she's marveling at how beautiful we can be at our best. Oh, and it it's appropriate then that she hides the object in, in the, book. the book. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the the blue that we talked about being representative of the human world. Abe is blue, she wears blue, the book is blue, all the poetry books are blue, in fact. And um, when Abe is listening to music that makes him think of her, the stereo is blue, but they are all a much richer, more vivid blue than that cold, steely blue that the actual human world is. Abe yeah. and Noala are the... Uh, the epitome of idealizing the human world and wanting to embrace the best qualities of it um, while still not being part of it. And, and she only wears that blue outfit when she's at the BPRD. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, she's in the golds of the magic world. Yeah. I mean, if, even even Mr. Wink's object is his his hand, like that mechanical hand that like shows something more going on. He's just he's not just a bruiser, even though that's what that's like you know how he's conveyed for most of his time. But it's the idea that like even he gets characterization through an object. 
Did you know that they were going to switch the uh, right hand of Doom to be the left hand of Doom at the early stages of uh, modelling for the first film? Uh, because it would have not given um, uh, Ron Perlman use of his right hand, which, of course, most actors would quite like when on a film. But he's ambidextrous. Nice. So they went back to right hand of doom. I was going to say, yeah. if they're right-handed, a lot of actors are left-handed. Hmm. Of course, yeah. There, there is a higher incidence of left-handedness in um, actors than there are in the average population, which I believe is approximately one in ten. You're left-handed, aren't you? I am left-handed. You're an actor, aren't you? I am. Y'all are all sinister as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, I always thought it was weird that it was the right hand of doom when it's mm. the left hand that's the sinister one. The left hand is the devil. Quick hand. contact, Mike Mediola. Slight abbreviation to the Hellboy character. <laughs> yeah. You might want to just mirror every single frame of art you've ever drawn. Mm. But the devil is also a liar, so it might be that uh-huh. it's just to mislead. Um, I have a few little things to mention as well um, that we haven't covered yet. Um, are we still going to talk about um, the Lord of the Rings imagery? No, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, it was just the fact that um, that the design of Nuada and the look of the elves generally, but he specifically is the the most. Uh, emphasized version of it um, is kind of somewhere between the Blade Two vampires and which are no, vampires are horror elves. Let's face it, hmm. um, just the same way that Vulcans are sci-fi elves. Um, Except for uh, in Twilight, where there's no horror and they're just, they're elves, just elves that drink blood. Absolutely, um, and then only occasionally, and then only animals. So it's fine. Um, and um, and the Lord of the Rings elves. There there is so much of the the way that they look and the the styling in his spear, in his sword, in his costume, in his his paleness, the hair. Um, it it's really hard not to think that this is what elves must really look like because so much of um, of visual mythology um, takes them as as being that way. They did go out of their way to not call on Celtic imagery as much as they could. There's actually a lot of Oriental and Islamic imagery uh, tied into their clothing and designs. Mm, although there is one exception to that, which is that the lock to the troll market when um, oh, yeah. Kraus comes out and goes into the locks to open them as steam is a triple spiral. Of course. Which is a Celtic symbol. Oh, my favourite line in the film is Noala's, uh, but our green fields cannot grow out of all that blood. That is the mm. core of what drives her, that if the war happens, it doesn't matter who wins. They can't live in a world that's had that much death in it. Yeah. Um, and that ultimately is why she is so willing to be sacrificed for this. She'd, she'd give up literally everything for this because if if they lose, she loses everything anyway. And she is uh, macro for the entire elf race because when you go in, the, the, the king, it's actually like a, a, an old steam factory that, that, that they're holed up in. So it's kind of like the disused parts of hu- the human society that are no longer being considered important to them. And there's this beautiful autumnal, like tumbling leaves uh, and, and this sort of like sense of decline about the place and acceptance of their death that that has that sort of melancholy, peaceful wisdom to it. That's what Nawada's fighting against. He's the fire saying, no, we shall, as you say, Lauren, we shall not go gentle. There's a lot of mirroring in this. 
mirroring imagery to harken back to things. You mentioned something earlier about there being a little bit of a parallel between Hellboy and Wink. When Noada talks to Hellboy about you're, you're just doing what they tell you to do, and as a mercenary, that's what Wink's doing. Wink has the big, chunky hand, which obviously uh, mirrors Hellboy's, um, but also he has two tusks and one of them is broken off, which mirrors Hellboy's broken off horn in the intro sequence when he's just Lil Hellboy. <laughs> There's a mirroring when Nuala meets Abe for the first time, when she, uh, Abe asks her who she is. She holds up her bracelet, which has the royal seal on it, which is effectively her surname. Abe has sapiens on a badge on his suit. Nice. And they a big deal is made at that point of his name. He tells her his name and she says there's no such name <laughs> and then realises, oh, that actually is his name. <laughs> the scene where they go through the, the butcher's mm-hmm. warehouse... The way the beef, the sides of beef are bagged up in plastic bags, that mirrors the trees outside the hospital Mm. in the first movie. Yes. I don't know exactly what that means, but it it just struck me that that was very visually similar. Side note, by the way, that troll lady trying to eat the cat Mm. and making the entire audience uncomfortable so that when Hellboy immediately steps in and, and, and muscles her around, you're kind of on his side. It makes it, like, it sets you off... Like, uh, with a big kind of helping of, well, no, he's right to do this, which is why when he behaves boorishly and smashes people around the place in territory that he really shouldn't be in, uh, it, it takes a while for him to be able to come come back from that with, with a sense of, maybe I was a little, I don't know, heavy-handed. This is a bit out there, but it occurred to me briefly whether Cronin is an embodiment of Hellboy's Angel of Death. She says, I will be with him at every crossroads. Cronin is there when Hellboy has his crossroads in the first film. And she says, I have a heart filled with sand and dust. Um, Cronin literally has has a a heart heart filled with sand sand and dust. dust. Wow. Could be purely coincidence, but that that did Cronin was there at his birth. Yeah. Well, yeah, effectively he was there when the he world. was drawn through into the world, yeah. Huh. So, um, wondered about that. Um, this is a tiny thing. Accurate regional accents make me very happy. <laughs> the Irish imp, uh-huh. it would have been so easy and so completely normal for Hollywood to just have, like, a random um, Republic of Ireland accent Derry. like uh, very countryfied that sort of stereotypical irish mm. um way of speaking that a lot Hork. of people have but he has a northern irish accent which yeah. would be appropriate for county antrim so i liked that that made me briefly happy the beth moore goblin is played by john alexander who also played the body of johann kraus very physically expressive actor and there was something else I wanted to say about the end. Oh, that's it. Two, right, two two points that I wanted to mention about the the, um, the end. When the elves die, they become statues, mm-hmm. which again echoes that idea of um, once something has passed and is no longer in this moment, it becomes myth, it becomes story, it becomes art, mm-hmm. um, and and that is exactly what happens to them. Um, but. 
Nuada's statue is destroyed and Nuala's is not. So it's her view and her perspective that survives, even if it is in a um, a calcified form, even if it's been frozen in stone. Mm. That that memory of her and therefore the memory of her principle will carry on. Um, and the final thing, and I loved this, this is, this is about Liz and it emphasises for me that idea that Liz has one foot in the magical world and one foot in the human world. Hellboy is able to challenge Nuada because he is the son of the devil, because he is uh, Anung and Rama. Um, and therefore he is bound by the same magical laws and rules that Nuada is. He is able to take the crown from him because he defeats him. Liz is not part of that. She is in the human world, which means that she, in turn, can simply take the crown from Hellboy and melt it, having not <laughs> have to defeat him in battle at all. Although it was neat that he actually did defeat uh, um Nuada. It could have been easy for uh, it to be a case of uh, that, as at the end of um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the sheriff actually does defeat Robin Hood, mm. and then Robin stabs him when he's not looking. But if uh, if Nuada had effectively beaten Hellboy, and then Nuala cheats by yeah. stabbing herself, it would have felt stolen. Yeah. But Hellboy beat him fair and square, and then he reaches for a concealed weapon, which is what villains do. Exactly. But very specifically, he says, I win, you live. And it's yeah. not about punishing him. Absolutely. But that that op- seems to operate on um, possession of the Elder Wand rules. Mm. I interpreted the the way that the crown worked like that was actually more of the programming of the, of the robots. The... Um, the golden army itself because as soon as that challenge is uttered they all step to the side to allow it and it's and it's just like the only evidence that we have that it has to be someone of this noble bloodline to use it is just we're told that and um i don't know like maybe it's just because if some if like that challenge if that that effort isn't gone through like appropriately the the appropriate ritual isn't performed then the robots aren't going to respond in an appropriate way mm. so when like Liz takes it off of him i mean like she didn't do a challenge or anything but they also don't have any like attack programming like they had at the time mm. it's almost like a fail safe switch for it and then she just melts it yeah which is great <laughs> I mentioned that Luke Goss was fantastic as Nuada. Anna Walton gets no real props in this movie. It's almost a thankless task because she's surrounded by so many colourful, amazing people. Uh, as Princess Nuala, she has a wonderful soul conveyed in a short a piece of screen time. And there's a real sense of loss at the end. I keep trying to find any clips with Princess Nuala speaking, but... There's just loads and loads and loads of music videos. This was released in 2008, and and there are a lot of people, as was the custom of the time, setting clips from movies against soft rock from the 2000s, which hasn't aged well. And this film, specifically, the relationship between Abe and Noala seems to have struck a chord with those people. We're twins, even as children. A link has bound us, one to the other. If you must die, sweetheart Die knowing your life was my life's best part I never had a chance to tell you how I felt Give me your hand Have 
out against you. Leave them. Is it them or us? Which Holocaust should be chosen? Now, the, the actual end uh, for me w- with Hellboy, when he is confronted with, you've maybe been destroying your own people. You are a monster in service of monsters killing your own kind. And, and, and why are you doing so for these humans? Do you think they care about you? They will turn on you. We've heard variations on this throughout a lot of superhero movies. But um, something very profound happened. This was the last film we saw in the cinema while Sharon was pregnant. It was uh, August of 2008, and Lyra was born on the 25th. So that whole kind of, you know, twins thing at the at the end there was this wonderful kind of anticipation moment of, you know, like when you're that heavily pregnant, you you're, you feel um, kind of a, a combination of excitement and terror at all times that you're, you know, something wonderful is going to happen. And, but it could go horribly wrong, but it could also go horribly right. Mm. And, and there's also the element of, I am heartily sick of being pregnant by this point. Yeah. It's August. I'm melting. Yeah. Can you get this thing over with? But then I have a baby to look after, which is going to be terrifying. Yeah, but one of the reasons that you couldn't really stick around in the, in the cinema was that it just general sense of discomfort. Mm. However, uh, a year or so afterwards, I ended up parting ways with my father, who I had tried to reconnect with in my adult life uh, for a few years. And I'm not going to go into why, because we're already running late. But I will say that this film helped me get through that sense of loss because at the end of this film Hellboy rejects Manning as the third and final father he's been offered if you remember the um, obviously Broom was his true father and then was uh, uh, killed so Hellboy had to sort of muddle on with uh, uh, Manning the the human world version of a father and uh, this point you know poisoned demon father in in the shape of uh, Rasputin. And obviously Manning uh, does not ingratiate himself to Hellboy throughout this film. They they aren't compatible in a father-son scenario. It's not going to work. But the thing that really allows Hellboy to accept that is the taking on of the mantle of father himself. And the thing that allowed me to go, you know what, I kind of don't need to keep trying to make you be my father, was the acceptance that I can take that role now. You are no longer required. In this particular dynamic, the father is now me. And this film will never not be super powerful for me at the end here. It's not a huge rejection on Hellboy's part. He's just kind of brushing him off and going, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm through working for you people again. He's not, he doesn't hate Manning, but he has accepted that there's nothing more Manning can do for or with him. And that's profound for me. And I love the sense of completion at the end where they've decided that they're not necessarily going to help humans or help um, 
the magical folk necessarily. They're going to focus on the, the family unit that they've built together. And that's kind of been the story of our life. And this is just was perfectly placed for that point for us. And I, I wish more people could have seen it. It's lovely that people can discover it again in streaming and on Blu-ray and and actually, I think possibly if if this new Hellboy does well at all, people might revisit these and go, these were ahead of their time. I mean, this one was kind of, this first one was a little bit mired down by X-Men, but this one's really... <laughs> mired down. <laughs> and on that bombshell, folks. I don't think I can do better than that. <clears throat> Uh, oh, no, I can. I can do better than that. Although it's actually you. You did better than that. Because uh, this is something that Sharon uh, discovered while we were watching the uh, last time. And um, and that's as we close out and bid goodbye forever to Del Toro's Hellboy. I'm going to leave you with something wonderful. Hellboy came into the world in 1944, a prince of monsters. And at the same time, Ophelia from Pan's Labyrinth left the world of humans to return to being a princess among fairies. And that just kind of made the whole thing balance. Continues the circle. So, thank you very much, Lauren. Always happy to be here. Uh, and since this is the last time we're talking about Hellboy, I wanted to, since, you know, I don't have anything personal to shout out, uh, if you like Hellboy and... Uh, the comics in this art style. Look up on YouTube the amazing screw on head. It's so good. It's one. <laughs> it's only one episode, but it's literally the BPRD before Hellboy came yeah, around, and it's really, it's really endearing and how silly and and amazing it is. Um, but yeah, but yes. So that's my plug for a random thing, and thank you for having me. The amazing screw on head, folks. It features well. Patton Oswalt, Paul Giamatti, and David Hyde Pierce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So next week. Uh, oh, actually, next week I'm going to reissue Pacific Rim with a, be- uh, a new beginning and a uh, new close so that it can be part of this series. But it is going to be effectively the same podcast. But if you've not heard it, it's just as good as any of these. We really, really love Pacific Rim. And. Uh, it is a a sense of let us set aside this myth that this is just silly popcorn and you can just switch your brain off. It is far from it. But I'm going to release that just before we release Crimson Peak, which was the next film that he did after many, many years on hiatus trying to get Weta to help him make a Hobbit or two. Good God. You gotta make a Hobbit or two, boys. <laughs> You've got to make a hobbit or two. (laughs) (laughs) Not three. Never three. (laughs) Oh, dear. Kill me. You must. Frey will not stop. I cannot. Sorry, pal. I win. You live.
School of Movies is funded by you wonderful people on Patreon. The show would not exist without you, and our special $15 tier get named sponsorship credit every week, so a special thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Shisham. Okay, so uh, we shall see you next week uh, for kind of a double bill of uh, Pacific Rim followed by Crimson Peak. And uh, thank you very much, Laurie. Thank you for having me. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. And to all of our patrons, a reminder, we can't smile without you.